Um, I used to do my struggle podcast uh, for a while, but I'm really kind of taking a step back from that. Um, I might post an episode here and there, but I'm really focusing on on uh, on these studies and really around the topic that we're that we're going to be discussing tonight. So I'm super stoked to dive in. Cool. Well, yeah, this is um, sort of a, an ongoing thing that kind of accidentally happened with Rev Left over the last several episodes, which is a focus on American history, but specifically a focus on labor history, right? We, we had um, somebody, we had some labor journalists on recently to talk about the recent UAW strikes. Um, we had a conversation over on guerrilla history uh, with John Melrod, who was a, you know, a communist who struggled within unions through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, and we had a lot to learn from him. And so today we're going to be talking about another iteration of both American history and labor history. And I do think it is it is increasingly important for uh, communists in North America, communists in the United States, um, to study and understand our our history, our labor history in particular, etc. It's very important to understand, you know, the Russian Revolution. It's essential to understand the Chinese Revolution, study uh, places around the world. Um, but for those of us based here, we have to work with the conditions we exist in here. We have to understand our cultural and material history here um, in order to develop strategies and approaches going forward. And I think uh, today's episode is going to be very helpful in that regard and add to the work that we've been doing here on RevLeft to try to bolster that among our listeners. But let's go ahead and get into it. So yeah, Chase, uh, can you kind of introduce uh, me and the audience to what we'll be talking about today? Sure. So, I mean, communists exist to develop the organization and consciousness of the working class for the overthrow of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, you know, to establish a proletarian dictatorship and begin the transition through socialism to communism, mm-hmm. right? We don't, we don't wage class struggle for class struggle's sake, nor is our primary goal simply the building up of the trade unions. You know, we want to end the struggle between classes, which entails the abolition of classes and class society. And so, you know, this has to be understood as the ultimate task of every genuine living communist today. But a world of communism cannot be realized if we do not first lead the working classes of our respective countries to overthrow each of our own ruling class of capitalists. And this is really the main thrust behind what we are going to be discussing. So if the working class in the United States is going to overthrow the American bourgeoisie, it needs a party of its own most advanced and capable militants to lead it. You know, no mass organization, not even a militant minority trade union organization, which is what we'll be talking about today, can fill the role of a proletarian vanguard party. You know, this is actually one of the theoretical and organizational errors of the old syndicalists that the communists in the United States needed to overcome early on, but we'll say more about that stuff later. So while there is no part of our past that we should simply try to copy and paste, you know, an effort to reconstitute a communist party and build a proletarian socialist movement in this country doesn't need to start from scratch. If, if we're equipped with revolutionary theory, a grasp of the experience of the Communist Party and the labor movement through the Trade Union Educational League, and then after that, the Trade Union Unity League from 1921 to 1935, gives us an opening, I believe, into how we might go about accomplishing these tasks. However, today we are going to focus on the Trade Union Educational League. Here on out, I'll just refer it, you know, to it as the tool, right? T-U-E-L which operated from 1920 to 1929. And so the point I hope to make clear throughout this entirety of the uh, the episode is that whether you're a communist or not, 
I think an immediate task for all who genuinely want to serve the working class and the masses more broadly in overthrowing the American bourgeoisie is the establishment of a tool like militant minority organization within the established trade unions to unite the relatively advanced workers for the purposes of ousting the incorrigible opportunists and social chauvinists. That's Lenin. Organizing the unorganized. That's William C. Foster. And transforming the trade unions into an organizing center of the working class for its broad interest of complete emancipation. That's Marx. In the latter half of the episode, uh, we're going to look at the struggles of the railroad workers, the miners, the garment workers, fur workers, and textile workers throughout the 1920s, and I hope folks stick around for that introduction to the work of the tool in those industries. But before we even get there, I'd like to stress the importance of the need for revolutionary theory and clarify Marxism's understanding of the role of the proletariat, and principally the industrial proletariat, in the struggle to abolish capitalism and imperialism. Yeah. So, yeah, Brad, if you're good to go, I'm ready to dive in. Yeah, well, let's get there in a second. Uh, I just want to comment on the sort of importance of, of revolutionary theory in general. We had an episode with uh, Jay Malfawad Paul on his book, Politics and Command, which addresses a lot of these issues. And, of course, longtime listeners of Rev Left and just veterans of you know Marxism in general understand that while trade union struggle is essential under capitalism and that you know radical socialists and communists uh, you know need to have a presence in those struggles and support those struggles and help develop those struggles, in and of themselves, they are not enough, right? Unions are sort of what we have under capitalism in a class society that we ultimately want to overthrow. And there's many reasons why we want to abolish class society. But one of the reasons that is very important and studying American history will reveal to be important is that if you do these half measures, if you just do reformism, even if you get to, let's say, elements of social democracy that might have been present in something like the New Deal, um, what happened? And, you know, the best parts of the New Deal, as flawed as it was, came from these bottom up movements um, by communists and socialists and union organizers, etc. But without a real socialist transition away from capitalism and ultimately a transcendence of class society, any and all of those gains can and will be rolled back. And so, you know, I understand neoliberalism, the rise of Reagan um, in the United States, and then Clinton solidifying of neoliberalism as largely a, a ruling class response to the New Deal, to the falling rate of profit throughout the 70s, and a sort of assault on, um, you know, what what made the New Deal beneficial for at least some segment of, you know, in particular white middle class sort of workers um, in the United States. Um, and so we can just see with something like that, that even some good things that developed out of the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era and eventually the New Deal um, were still subject and actually were heavily rolled back. And um, and so, you know, if you want to reform the system, you want to operate within the system, you know, democratic socialists, you know, this their strategy of using the electoral mechanisms to try to gain power. That's all fine and dandy as long as you keep in mind that as long as you maintain capitalism, any and all of those gains can and will be rolled back. And we've seen time and time again that exact thing happen. And so ultimately, if you want to secure these gains, if you really want equality and justice and freedom for all people going forward indefinitely in perpetuity, we need the socialist and ultimately the communist struggle. Um, do you want to add anything before I ask the next question, Chase? No, I'm, I'm absolutely in, in agreement. Cool. We should sh uh, stop short of nothing of revolution. Absolutely.
Yeah. So having gone over 80 years without anything close to resembling a vanguard party, we suffer from a fairly low level of ideological development and our very low level grasp of communist ideology, politics, and proletarian history has led to two extreme errors. The first being that of the internet politics of dogmatism, and the second being empiricism. Mao discredits the former in On Practice when he says, Marxism emphasizes the importance of theory precisely and only because it can guide action. If we have a correct theory, but merely prayed about it, pigeonhole it, and do not put it into practice, then that theory, however good, is of no significance, end quote. One only needs to hop on any social media platform to find an incredible amount of talk about Marxism, but not even a fraction of these people talking about Marxism are actually trying to make revolution in this country. You know, it is a theory stripped of the test of practice, which is not Marxism. Pertaining to that latter error, uh, empiricism, I was wrapped up in empiricism myself for a while fairly recently. On the Mass Struggle podcast, if you listen to old episodes, I used to say all the time that mass work is everything. Honestly, I was acting as if we were starting from scratch. Practice something, anything, everything, and, and practice itself, I thought, was guaranteed to lead to better practice. But I was carelessly ignoring the incredible breadth of knowledge we can already learn from. Here I'm thinking specifically the experience of the French Revolution with the French proletariat between uh, 1848 and 1852, the Paris Commune in 1871, the Bolshevik Revolution through Stalin's death in 1953, and the lessons from the Chinese Revolution up through the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, which ended with the counter-revolution following Mao's death in 1976. And these revolutions should serve merely as the beginning, not the end of our study. But having gone so long without a vanguard in the United States, on one hand, we see Marxism being reduced to generalized, abstract phrases, void of any real practice today. And on the other hand, we see a bunch of activity that is being done in the name of Marxism, but is really serving no one but the bourgeoisie because the activists didn't care to first take the study of revolutionary theory seriously. And so amidst this swamp of dogmatism and empiricism, there is a desperate need for revolutionary theory. In what is to be done, against the wishes and ideas of the economists and the worshippers of the Russian proletariat's spontaneous trade union activity, Lenin clarified the need for revolutionaries to grasp revolutionary theory and struggle ideologically against incorrect ideas. And by incorrect ideas, I mean ideas that fail to accurately reflect reality. And why did Lenin see the need to struggle against wrong ideas? Insofar as wrong ideas do not reflect reality, they cannot serve the proletariat in their ultimate goal of understanding and transforming the society that enslaves them. Without a revolutionary theory, right, Lenin said, there can be no revolutionary movement. To ground this in the particular topic of today's discussion, if we do not equip ourselves with the theory of Marxism, there is only so far we'll be able to go in a struggle against the capitalists through the trade union movement. You know, without a, a deep grasp of Marxism, we will not be able to turn the most elementary form of working class organization for fighting the capitalists into, as Marx said, a deliberate organizing center of the working class 
in the broad interest of its complete emancipation. So without Marxism, like the bourgeois trade unionists, we will end up treating the labor movement as an end, uh, as an end in itself, which is an end in the interests of the capitalists, not the workers. You know, we will fail to overcome trade unionism. We will fail to help the workers distinguish between their real friends and their real enemies. We will fail to raise the consciousness of the workers from the more economic and immediate concerns to the level of genuine class consciousness. The principal error of people who call themselves socialists and Marxists today and are active in the trade union movement is right opportunism. As systematically exposed by my comrades in their recent Cosmonaut article, the UPS struggle and the tasks of Marxists in the labor movement. You know, everyone from the Party for Socialism and Liberation to the Democratic Socialists of America to a number of Trotskyist organizations all cloaked to the class collaborationism of Sean O'Brien with the language of class struggle and historic victory, or were simply passive when the correct line was clearly to vote no, given that even a basic glance at the development of the struggle revealed the tentative agreement to be a masterful deception, a great betrayal of not only UPS workers, but the whole of the working class. So because these organizations are without revolutionary theory, these groups in the labor movement acted not as servants and leaders of the working class, but as their enemies. As Lenin explains to us in what is to be done, the best case scenario for a movement without revolutionary theory is that the working class will spontaneously develop class instinct due to the objective contradiction between the workers and the capitalists. They'll say, work sucks, right? Bosses suck. We workers should unionize to make more money and make our lives a little less miserable. But all the unions in the world cannot fundamentally change the fact that workers under capitalism have to endlessly defend themselves against the onslaught of the capitalists, given our position in society as an oppressed class of laborers in need of employment for survival. Despite what modern revisionists espouse, we cannot gradually unionize and vote our way out of capitalism into socialism. The workers must be educated on and prepared for their historic task of revolution. And the communists, true communists, must take revolutionary theory to the people. The realm of ideas is, is, uh, is an extremely important site for struggle in the war between capitalism and communism. You know, wrong ideas incorrectly reflect society and therefore materially serve in the interests of the capitalists and imperialists. Even on the other side of the revolution, right? There will exist a material basis for revisionism to arise within the party itself as long as we remain in the period of socialist transition. Both the material inequality that persists under socialism and the privileges that members of the party of the now ruling proletarian class receive are ground for a new bourgeoisie to emerge within the vanguard of the revolutionary class itself. You know, this is what happened in the Soviet Union and in China. Revisionism found its basis in the revolutionary parties, and the capitalist rotors defeated the defenders of the revolutionary line, turning the first two socialist states, the first, not the last, the first two socialist states, back into capitalist countries while masking their bourgeois rule by keeping the word communist next to the word party. Again, and on practice, Mao says, in class society, everyone lives as a member of a particular class. In every kind of thinking, without exception, 
is stamped with the brand of a class, end quote. So those of us who are serious about turning the labor movement into an organizing center of the working class for its ultimate goal of complete emancipation must understand the role of theory in the struggle to abolish capitalism, right? We cannot transform what we do not understand. And one more thought on this point on the need for revolutionary theory. It's possible to come to see the effectiveness and necessity of an organization like the Trade Union Educational League and the Trade Union Unity League, but fail to grasp the need for revolutionary theory and thus continually be led to wrong political lines and the incorrect handling of contradictions throughout the struggle. You know, the popular liberal notions of class struggle unionism or the rank and file strategy are great examples, uh, I think, of revisionists talking about workers' militancy, but really putting forward ideas and politics that incorrectly worship the spontaneity of the workers, as opposed to developing their consciousness and fail to lead the workers in transforming the trade unions for the ultimate purpose of proletarian revolution. Kim Moody, the main theoretician, uh, the theoretician of the rank-and-file strategy, was a founder of both the Trotskyist International Socialists and the more well-known Labor Notes. And we could spend all day tearing apart his article, Origins of the Rank-and-File Strategy, but a short quote from the article on how Draper's conception of the tool gets at this point of needing revolutionary theory to correctly work within the trade unions. Quote, Tool was somewhat of a hybrid in that it did have support among the, some high-level leaders, particularly those in the Chicago Federation of Labor, but mostly it was a genuine rank-and-file movement that spread rapidly across the unions in 1922 to, through 23. Its initial success was based precisely on the willingness of Foster and at first the CP to go with the existing opposition movements in several unions and to address existing consciousness. As Draper put it, and this is quoting Draper, as a result of the policy amalgamation in the Labor Party, they followed all the ferment that existed, all those currents of opposition that followed, that flowed beneath the surface of the movement, coalesced around the tool. And that's ending Draper's quote. Back to Moody. But sure enough, CP control was increased and the party actually merged the tool's paper, the Labor Herald, with Soviet Russia pictorial and the Liberator, and turned it into a Communist Party front. This killed the tool as a real movement. The lesson seemed clear. Socialists should help build rank-and-file movements and organizations, but the task is not to take them over or dominate them, but to develop a broad leadership that can sustain the movement. This was a lesson that later made the Teamsters for a Democratic Union possible. End quote. All right, so that was, uh, again, Kim Moody in his article, Origins of the Rank and File Strategy. Now, these eight sentences, in my opinion, are quite unbelievable. But just in case it's not extremely clear, Moody and Draper's ahistorical conception of the tool strips the tool of its revolutionary character, watering it down into a simple tool for trade unionism, which is downright a false mischaracterization. Because revisionism is a rejection of Marxism, it is utterly incapable of leading the proletariat in their struggle for emancipation. All this to say, it is not enough to want to organize or 
tail the existing opposition or sustain some broad movement. This is one of the basic lessons from Lenin's What is to be Done. In chapter one, Lenin quotes Engels on the need to not only struggle on the political and economic front, but on the theoretical front. And why, we might ask, is it essential we struggle not on two, but all three fronts? It is because, as Lenin says, the role of the vanguard fighter can only be fulfilled by a party that is guided by the most advanced theory. So, continue to reject revolutionary theory, and the masses will continue to go without a revolutionary movement. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's incredibly crucial. It's something that we stress on our show all the time, the essential nature of revolutionary theory and what's left when you don't have it or when you only have parts of it or when you default to a sort of um, a more mainstream position, whether that's within an organization, within a union, within the society as a whole, um, you lose that revolutionary theory. Therefore, you lose the guidance and all of the wisdom that have been tested right, by a figure like Lenin, by a figure like Mao, not in the armchair of these two thinkers, but in actual real-world socialist struggle and victory. Um, and so, you know, they did that. Lenin and Mao were able to do that in a way that others were not precisely because they understood exactly what Chase is saying here, the essential nature of revolutionary theory to guide revolutionary praxis. And so I think that's incredibly important. Um, I will say this just to kind of put this out there. Of course, a show like Rev Left is meant to be, you know, casting a wide net and speaking to different elements of the left. Um, would you say it's fair that this analysis is fundamentally um, a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist analysis? And do you want to say anything about that before we move on? Uh, no, I mean, I, I would def- absolutely agree. Yeah, this is Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. Um, but no, I think that's, I, I, I think the folks uh, taking seriously the study of revolutionary theory and, and really trying to figure out, you know, um, why are all of these uh, different Marxisms uh, out there today and and what really reflects the reality the most correctly i think those are really important questions for people to dive in you know for example like if the question of whether china china is an imperialist power or not is a very important question mm-hmm. because um the tool in the 20s and 30s part of their program as i'll talk about later was to uh recognize soviet russia and so i mean if if a tool existed today and hell if if you have like five or six different socialist countries today, don't you think that would be a part? That would be a really important part of the tool program to support and to, to defend these socialist countries. But if there are no socialist countries today, and in fact, China is an imperialist power, you know, not just not a socialist power, but an imperialist country, well, then that would change the way in which we would encourage the proletariat of our own country and, of course, the proletariat of the world to relate to the struggle against China. So, yeah, I, I, I really do think that grasping revolutionary theory is important um, on, on all for all questions. I don't want to get, uh, you know, logged down here in anything or, you know, get in between the ML versus MLM part of the debate. But an ML might say something. And, you know, this is not, of course, the, the point of this entire episode. But, you know, it's worth bringing it up because this is a hot topic on the left. And as you just as you said yourself, it's an important one. An ML might say, yes, that while China has a capitalist mode of production, objectively, and capitalist social relations, objectively, that there is a socialist party overseeing that capitalist development, um, and 
ideally or at least in their rhetoric saying that they are genuinely interested in moving in the direction of socialism once a certain amount of you know productive forces and wealth etc have been created they don't want to isolate themselves and become a sort of pariah state of the international system um they've embedded themselves into the global economy in such a way that you know is at least strategic um in the sense of you know growing their own economy and not being sort of partitioned out of the the main global trading block and that these are parts and parcel of developing um socialism and it's not happening instantaneously it's not you know an upheaval of the entire chinese society but ultimately um socialist and communist party lines even if they're just ml not mlm um are sort of directing the 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 state at least and they have a plan for the future of Chinese society to move more robustly in a socialist direction. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I do have ML listeners who would be thinking something like that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible for a communist to see China uh, at all representing anything close to socialism or communism anymore. Um, politically, uh, the counter-revolution was, was first political before even economic, before they were able to destroy the uh, what the the two and a half decades of construction of socialism economically, they politically had to overthrow um, the revolutionary line, and um, it's a full on capitalist uh, party. That's was kind of what I was suggesting earlier when I say they just keep the name communist, um, but there's there's nothing resembling anything communism in in China anymore politically, economically, or even uh, culturally. It, and like I said, it's been 20, what, 45 years now. Well, the Chinese proletariat are in need of, of a whole new revolution. Now, there's no saving what happened so, you know, half a century ago, or uh, returning to that just by an internal struggle within the party, because the party is a bourgeois party. Mm. Yeah. And for those interested in, in learning more about the difference between Maoism and Marxist Leninism and some of the debates, we've had many, many episodes on both explaining Leninism, explaining Maoism, and we've had on many, um, Figures, you know, like a, maybe a J. Malfawad Paul who comes on talks about um, uh, continuity and rupture, in which he lays out this argument in extreme detail. So again, this is not the point of this particular episode, so I don't want to get bogged down. But for all those who are interested in hearing more of this sort of debate and this sort of advancement of, of Maoist theory in particular, Marxism, Leninist, Maoist uh, theory, uh, you can definitely go check that out. But let's go ahead and get back uh, to what's at hand today, and that is, of course, studying a tool. So um, moving forward in the conversation, according to Marxism, what role must the working class and the trade union movement play in a revolutionary movement in a developed capitalist country like the United States? Sure, yeah. So stressing the fundamental importance of developing correct political lines, during his 1971 provincial tour, uh, Mao urged the correctness or otherwise of the ideological and political line decides everything. When the party's line is correct, then everything will come its way, end quote. And, you know, this might sound a little elementary at first, but before moving on to the tool, I'd like for us to return to this idea, Brett, that fundamental to Marxism that teaches us that it is the working class that is the most consistently revolutionary class under capitalism and, more specifically, the industrial proletariat is the most consistently revolutionary section of the working class as a whole. Marxism teaches us that the proletariat has a unique class interest in ending all forms of exploitation and oppression. And because of this unique objective class interest, the proletariat has proven 
to be the most consistently revolutionary class in a world of capitalism and imperialism. Because it is the most consistently revolutionary class, it then must take up its role as the leading class of all other classes and strata in the war to end all exploitation and oppression. Why is it that more than any other class or strata under capitalism, the working class has the most at stake in ending not just capitalist exploitation and class rule, but all oppressive social relations? It is because these social relations and the corresponding ideas they produce serve to reproduce the rule of the proletariat's enemy number one, right? The ruling capitalist class. And if the working class is going to break free from its enslavement, if the proletariat is going to bring an end to its subordination, it has to aim to destroy every last vestige of patriarchy and racism, both the material inequalities and subjective prejudices that are foundational to this old society. And vice versa, if oppressed peoples you know, want to see the end of their oppression, if they want to abolish patriarchy and white supremacy and Christian supremacy in the United States, they should see to it that the working class builds up the revolutionary movement and that all of the progressive elements of the various classes and strata in the United States support them in their revolution. Presently, we are in a stage where we do not even have a party, right? Let alone a strong pre-party formation, which means we need to be strategic and intentional, right? Not careless with the dissemination of our limited forces. In the tasks of the Russian social democrats, Lenin speaks to the attitude of the communists toward working amongst the various sections of the proletariat and masses. And this is a long quote, but I think it's worth reading every word. Again, this is from uh, the tasks of the Russian social democrats. Quote, our work is primarily and mainly directed to the factory urban workers. Russian social democracy must not dissipate its forces. It must concentrate its activities on the industrial proletariat who are most susceptible to social democratic ideas, most developed intellectually and politically, and most important by virtue of their numbers and concentration in the country's large political centers. The creation of a durable revolutionary organization among the factory urban workers is therefore the first and most urgent task confronting social democracy. And by social democracy, he means communism. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, one from which it would be highly unwise to let ourselves be diverted at the present time. But while recognizing this necessity of concentrating our forces on the factory workers and opposing the dissipation of our forces, we do not in the least wish to suggest that the Russian social democrats should ignore other strata of the Russian proletariat and working class. Nothing of the kind. The Russian social democrats think it inopportune to send their forces among the handicraftsmen and rural laborers, but they do not in the least intend to ignore them. They will try to enlighten the advanced workers, also in questions affecting the lives of the handicraftsmen and rural laborers, so that when these workers come into contact with the more backward strata of the proletariat, they will imbue them with the ideas of the class struggle, socialism, and the politi political tasks of the Russian democracy in general, and of the Russian proletariat in particular. It is impractical to send agitators among the handicraftsmen and rural laborers when there is still so much work to be done among the factory urban workers. But in numerous cases, the socialist worker comes willy-nilly into contact with these people and must be able to take advantage of these opportunities and understand the general tasks of 
social democracy in, in Russia. Hence, those who accuse the Russian social democrats of being narrow-minded, of trying to ignore the mass of the laboring population for the sake of the factory workers, are profoundly mistaken. On the contrary, agitation among the advanced sections of the proletariat is the surest and the only way to rouse, as the movement expands, the entire Russian proletariat. The dissemination of socialism and the idea of the class struggle among the urban workers will inevitably cause these ideas to flow in the smaller and more scattered channels. This requires that these ideas take deeper root among the better prepared elements and spread throughout the vanguard of the Russian working class movement and of the Russian revolution, end quote. And so the lesson uh, that I hope that this quote highlights for us is that you know, we have to ask ourselves who it makes sense to focus our efforts on and why, right? With such limited forces, we don't even have, as I said, a, a strong pre-party formation yet. And if we fail to answer this question correctly, we're going to seriously delay the development of both the revolution and the vanguard. In Lenin's lecture on the 1905 revolution, he explains how the working class is not a homogenous whole that is without difference, but in fact, there are relatively advanced, intermediate, and relatively backward elements of the revolutionary class. And in the case of the 1905 revolution, it was the advanced metal workers, as demonstrated through the consistently political character of their strikes, that were able to lead the intermediate textile workers into higher forms of struggle, raising their consciousness from a more economic fight in early 1905 to the level of genuine class consciousness by the end of the year. Now, many will be surprised to find that the metal workers were among the highest paid workers of the Russian proletariat at that time. You know, why? Of course, because you know, they were the most militant in their fight amongst the manuf- uh, or against the manufacturers. Yet, despite being better paid than the textile workers, they proved to be the most advanced section of the proletariat. Then, through the working class, the communists were able to reach and lead the other classes and shadow the Russian society, such as the lower and middle peasantry, the petty bourgeois students of intelligentsia, and the soldiers and sailors. My, my point here is this. It is the working class, and principally the industrial working class, that communists today should primarily concentrate our efforts with. I'll say more about this in a minute, but communists in the United States have largely abandoned, not in word, but in practice, the Marxist conception of the proletariat being the most consistently revolutionary class for more postmodern distortions of the proletariat and the masses. And to be clear, I think it makes perfect sense, of course, for communists to speak of the masses, but we need to be clear and concrete about the various sections of the proletariat, the various strata of the masses, and be strategic in who we focus on in every given stage of the struggle, and, of course, base that strategy on Marxism, not postmodernism. According to Marx, unions must quote, learn to act deliberately as organizing centers of the working class and the broad interest of its complete emancipation. They must aid every social and political movement tending in that direction, end quote. So in capitalist countries, the labor movement is the primary means in capitalist countries for um, building up a revolutionary proletariat. 
you know, it will be an extremely protracted process. It will be a, an extremely difficult process. But if we don't organize the working class at their workplaces and transform the unions into militant fighting mass organizations and educate the mass of workers on capitalist society, right? Their ultimate tasks as a class, who their real friends and enemies are, the role of the state in class society, the need for proletarian dictatorship and much, much more, then we will not be able to build up a proletarian vanguard and we certainly will not be able to overthrow the bourgeoisie. Many communist organizations in the United States, including many Maoist organizations, have abandoned the proletariat in practice by decentering the trade union movement, or in the case of the RCP in 1978, outright rejecting the trade union struggle entirely as an economism. You know, the right opportunists tend to abandon the proletariat by rejecting revolutionary theory and politics, but the left opportunists erroneously suggest that U.S. imperialism and the existence of the labor aristocracy make the labor movement in imperialist countries less effective, less important site of struggle. And in the case of organizations who follow the line of the RCP post-1978, they completely discard it. You know, maybe in a future conversation, Brett, you and I can discuss the postmodern misconceptions of the impact of imperialism on the working class and on who really makes up the labor aristocracy. But for now, what left opportunists end up doing is turn sites of struggle as should be part of a revolutionary movement into its center and foundation. Will anti-police mobilizations, you know, tenant organizing in the projects, you know, anti-imperialist efforts and anti-fascist fronts, you know, play important roles in building up a broad revolutionary movement? Of course, right? Anyone who denies the importance of those sites of and forms of struggle really shouldn't be taken seriously. But we have to understand that it is the trade union movement that must be developed as the foundation to the revolutionary movement. Well said. The, the relationship between the tools and the unemployed councils from the 20s through 1935, I think, demonstrates for us a proper relationship between these various forms of organization. You know, and even CPI Maoist, you know, according uh, to their document, Urban Perspective, emphasizes the centrality of their work among the industrial proletariat and their urban work. And capitalist relations are far less developed in India compared to the United States. No, it's not that the Indians are like generally premising urban work over their work in the countryside, which would, of course, be an error considering their given conditions. But unless their policy has changed due to the steady rise of fascism in India, urban perspective says their urban work is centered around the comparatively less developed industrial proletariat. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's much to be said about these postmodern interpretations of Engels and Lenin on the labor aristocracy and imperialism's impact on the consciousness of the working class in imperialist countries. But the result of this rejection of such elementary Marxist politics is the treating of the workplace as one among many sites of struggle and the proletariat as one among many classes. Contrary to the present bourgeois trade unionism of the reformist socialists and the decentering of the trade union struggle by left communists, the communists in the 1920s and 30s worked to transform the labor movement into a conscious organizing center for the working class that could act as a lever for its ultimate interest 
of emancipation from capitalism. And they did this through the Trade Union Educational League and later the Trade Union Unity League. You know, they understood that a powerful trade union movement can only come about after the opportunists and class collaborationists were ousted from the working class organizations. And the communists themselves took up positions of leadership by winning the support of the workers in the trade union movement. So, to wrap this section up, it is extremely concerning how easily people throw out the basic lessons of the Bolshevik experience as laid out in left-wing communism and infantile disorder. You know, in this key text, Lenin tells us that the struggle of the trade unions must, quote, be waged ruthlessly, and it must unfailingly be brought, as we brought it, to a point when all the incorrigible leaders of opportunism and social chauvinism are completely discredited and driven out of the trade unions. You know, political power cannot be captured, and the attempt to capture it should not be made until the struggle has reached a certain stage. This certain stage will be different in different countries and in different circumstances. It can it can uh, be correctly gauged only by thoughtful, experienced, and knowledgeable political leaders of the proletariat in each particular country, end quote. The main point here is this. Political power in the capitalist countries cannot be captured, and the attempt should not be made, until the trade union movement is firmly under the leadership of the most advanced, politically conscious, militant leaders of the working class. And to be clear, I actually don't think that it's possible to completely drive out the influence of the bourgeoisie from the labor movement under capitalism. You know, that kind of metaphysical thinking is akin to the revolutionists who dream of starting new, pure, revolutionary communist unions. But it is not only possible, but essential that we unite to oust the opportunist and chauvinist leadership from the labor movement. Mm. Yeah, well said. And I think what's important here, I mean, everything you said is really interesting. It's food for thought. It's really well said and detailed and uh, important. What I really love is that you are, these first two questions, you're really centering and making incredibly clear the precise revolutionary theory that you're talking about before we get into this specific historical example of tool. I think that's a really good approach to like understanding history in general and to like understanding a certain element of labor or communist history is like front load the conversation with the relevant political theory and then get into the examples. So now that we're equipped with that theory, we can parse through um, the, the historical specificities of tool um, with that theory freshly in mind and sort of help our, ourselves guide ourselves through this example. So very good on, on you for, for doing that. Um, another thing you mentioned is the postmodern distortion of certain Marxist concepts. And, you know, this can take a variety of forms across the spectrum from like actually committed postmodern or post-structuralist thinkers who are, you know, um, incredibly suspicious of grand narratives and who work to combat something like Marxism for its quote-unquote totalizing universalist nature, right? But I think it also takes much more subtle forms, and this is what you're getting at too, of people who don't consider themselves intellectually or ideologically postmodern in any way and maybe are even, you know, consciously and overtly hostile to postmodernism, but because it's so culturally ambient, it slips in. And one of the ways it slips in, as you said, is like sort of uh, getting off the the center and the clarity point of, of what the, the primary 
um, parts of, you know, sites of struggle are and sort of diffusing these as many sites of struggle. Um, you know, as you said, the industrial proletariat or de- denigrating that down and dissipating that into, well, there's many different types of classes, many different types of struggles, right? It's not about the class struggle. And these are, are issues that creep into even well-intentioned people, you know? I mean, a, a hallmark of, of post-structuralist thinkers or post-modern thinkers, as we call them, sort of, um, you know, non-super specifically, but whatever, is the the Foucauldian sort of um, dissipation of power structures. You know, it's not just the capitalist class exploiting the the um, the working class, but power actually operates through linguistic framing. It operates through grand narrative construction. It operates interpersonally, right? And all of these things have had an immense impact on the culture such that People who don't even know and can't even define or maybe never even heard the terms like postmodernism or poststructuralism or deconstruction, right, are still imbued with certain attitudes, postures, and unexamined assumptions because of the cultural infiltration of these ideas such that they do manifest in certain ways. And the only way that you can combat that, even in yourself as well as in others, is through organization, is through line struggle, is through a clarification of revolutionary theory, and of course uh, the real full-on and unapologetic embrace of something like scientific socialism, which is anathema to postmodern and post-structuralist thinkers, right? It's, It's actually a very specific target of theirs to attack um, as well as other things like liberalism and its pretensions to you know humanist universalism or whatever um, but those are just very important points to sort of make that you touched on but I just wanted to elaborate a little bit further I have one quick question a follow-up on what you said and then we'll move into the next question but you, you stress the importance rightfully so of the industrial proletariat can you just help us understand maybe people out there listening what does that mean? What is different about the industrial proletariat from other sections of the proletariat? And what makes um, a, a sort of the industrial proletariat industrial proletariat, right? Like what, what are some defining sure. features of that? Well, one of, the, one of the main defining features is the socialization, the mass socialization of that, that labor. And so today, um, on one hand, yeah, there is traditional manufacturing still in the U.S. It's not true that we completely... Uh, deindustrialized, like completely out of the United States. That's never been the case. And with the inter-imperialist conflict becoming more acute with China and the need for the United States to um, kind of onshore a lot of production or friendshore, you know, we're, we're bringing even more traditional manufacturing back right now. We're going to see waves of that, especially here in the South where, where I'm at. Anyways, um, so that's one, that's one thing. But uh, there's tra- traditional manufacturing, but there's also the really large socialized uh, production. You see Amazon, UPS, uh, those I think fall into account of the industrial. Really important sites are logistics, transportation, um, and also the defense industries. You know, uh, lithium mining and, and the production that has to do with lithium and the, the new electric vehicles, that's a, that's a very important site um, uh, of, of the industrial proletariat in the U.S. And so I think kind of those three, four categories uh, help me think of and conceive of the industrial proletariat today in the United States. Sure. And because of, you know, various occurrences, um, especially like the even just acutely the supply chain issues caused under uh, the COVID pandemic, for example, but other issues as well, like the conflict with China, um, you know, on behalf of the United States has led to even under, you know, obviously 
the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, this idea of reshoring or friend-shoring certain crucial industrial manufacturing factories and yes. plants that have otherwise, uh, through the neoliberal globalization era, been spread across the globe. And for various reasons, both imperialist interests on behalf of the United States and their co- competition with other countries, as well as just what the what the pandemic revealed about globalized supply chains in, in general, um, we're seeing a move in that direction as well. So we're actually you know, in some sense, bringing more industrial jobs back to the United States, back to North America, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's really important for people to understand is like there is a, um, uh, reindustrialization happening mm-hmm. in the United States. And it's primarily because of the interior imperialist conflict with China. And I want to make really quickly a, a, a point of distinction here because there are some reactionary chauvinist elements masquerading as Marxists who take this, um, idea to a whole, you know, different level and a, a non-Marxist level, which is to say that, you know, this fetishization of the industrial proletariat in juxtaposition sure. and the sort of annihilation of other forms of labor as not really working class is something that Marxists should not care about and, in fact, should denigrate. You'll hear people say something like, a barista isn't even a worker. You know, they're just like a blue-haired sure. liberal psyop, um, has nothing to do with Marxism. And that's obviously a right-wing deviation and error, and that is not what Chase is saying, uh, just to be yeah, clear. The in- yeah, the industrial is not the only section. That's the thing, uh, you know, what I said earlier is, is the work class isn't homogenous. There's yeah. difference within it. And a section of the proletariat is industrial, but then another section is the service sector. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, and the, another section might be the uh, fast food. I worked at um, uh, fast food for for a year or so, and at the airport, and they, I wasn't industrial, but I was part of the working class. I still am. You know, <laughs> uh, my wife and I still are. So yeah, that um, and the point is not to to just say that all we need. The only important section of the entire United States is the industrial proletariat. It's just to say, listen, we have very, very limited forces. And this is just what we've learned from the Bolshevik experience. Mm-hmm. It actually made and won the revolution. Um, they said, uh, Lenin said, look, we don't have that many forces. Yes, the most oppressed people in our society are not the working class. They're the peasantry. Okay, He was very clear about that. Um, but we can't go to the peasantry right now. Because of Marxism, we understand that we must go to the proletariat. And who amongst the proletariat must we target our very limited forces? Well, we must go to the industrial. And even amongst the industrial, they're proved to be, over time, relatively advanced, intermediate, relatively backward, and um, the rest is history. So that's why we need revolutionary theory, you know, to really guide our practice. And, and, and I hope that this is becoming more concrete rather than just like this, yeah, theory should guide our practice kind of abstract thing, but really in a concrete way for it's becoming more clear to me. Yes. And you're helping us in this episode right here, making it more concrete and less abstract. So I appreciate that. So now that we've discussed the role of revolutionary theory and its essential nature and the industrial proletariat and its important role in the revolutionary movement, can you give us a brief sketch of what the tool was or the trade union educational league? Absolutely. Let's go. I've been studying this stuff. I just not for not for very long at all. Um, but uh, I I dove in pretty deep, and pretty hard, and so I'm really excited to, uh, to share and to bring back into light the Trade Union Educational League because I think the communist work in the 20s and 30s in the labor movement um, has been hidden from our eyes. Brad, I mentioned before we started recording that you and I have both been studying. I mean, roughly almost a decade, maybe a little less. I don't know. Uh, Marxism for for a period now, and you and I both until recently had not even heard of the Trade Union Education League, which is right. mind boggling. So really excited um, 
the to to dive in. So totally. sure. The uh the tool was a united front labor organization through which the Communist Party linked up with the most advanced and militant elements of the working of the organized working class to struggle against the reactionary and opportunist leadership of the labor movement and raise the level of the workers' consciousness, right? The militancy of the union, or perhaps the character of a strike or strike movement. The fight was to be waged both against the class collaborationist leadership and the capitalists. The goal was nothing short of wresting the control of the entire trade union movement from the hands of the right opportunists, the class traders, and the labor misleaders. In other words, the representatives of the bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie. The tool was a militant minority organization in the sense that it was a labor organization for the most advanced and militant elements among the workers of all unions. And to explain the need for an organization of the most militant workers, a quote from Mao's sung questions concerning methods of leadership reminds us, quote, the masses in any given place are generally composed of three parts, the relatively active, the intermediate, and the relatively backward. The leaders must therefore be skilled in uniting the small number of active elements around the leadership and must rely on them to raise the level of the intermediate elements and to win over the backward elements, end quote. There's a very weird and widespread misconception of the militant minority that thinks it is only concerned with organizing a small fraction of the workers, or that it assumes that the mass of workers are stupid and unable to be consciously developed. You know, if this were the case, the tool would not have been able to directly and indirectly influence the thinking and practice of millions of workers across a period of less than 15 years. You know, these anti-communist misconceptions cannot be based on even the most elementary study of William Z. Foster's theorization of the militant minority and the historical practice of the tool. And frankly, you know, people who paint the Maoist method of analyzing the masses in given situations as elitist or sectarian will inevitably tail the relatively backward elements as opposed to winning over and leading the intermediate in sections of the backward through the relatively advanced. You know, the militant minority are simply the relatively active, right? And the relatively politically advanced in each particular union, which the communists need to unite with, you know, went over to the side of the communists and then rely on to lead the great mass of workers. But members of the tool would develop the organization, consciousness, and fighting capacity of the rank and file by uniting the workers around the particular needs and demands of each respective industry. For example, gender or racial discrimination within the union, the contracting out of labor to non-unionized needle workers, nationalization of the railroads, organization of both the bituminous and anthracite miners together, etc., and around the general program of the tool. Some of its main demands being amalgamation of the divided sectarian craft unions into single industrial unions, organization of the unorganized, recognition uh, of the USSR, the call for a working-class-led labor party, and abolition of capitalism. These efforts often took the shape of the establishment of a union-specific you know, progressive committee, which united the progressives and communists in campaigns from below as oppositional movements against the rightist AFL and socialist union leaders. 
So amidst the class collaborationism of the AFL's bourgeois trade unionists, the right opportunists of the reformist socialists and the independent unions, and the left sectarianism of the fading syndicalists and the anarchists in the IWW, the Communist Party, through the tool, was the most powerful and successful leader of the working class in the United States throughout the 1920s and helped to develop the objective and subjective conditions that made the great advances of the proletariat from 1933 through 35 possible. All right. So that sets up this. It's a sort of introduction to, to tool what it was, um, the context in which it was operating, etc. Um, one important element, which I don't know if you get to this later on in some of these questions or not, maybe we can talk about this more in depth as it becomes more relevant, um, but the the thing I always like to talk about when we're talking about the history of American uh, labor uh, unions and labor struggle is this um, – there's, of course, these internal contradictions that occur within various unions and you know these line struggles and all of that. But there's also at various times throughout American history – Multiple red scares, um, you know, that in the first and like the first wave in particular is really focused on um, on the unions and the radical leaders of more radical unions and this sort of um, purging of unions of radicals that came hand in hand with the co-option of what was left into these bourgeois electoral parties and, and the, the apparatus overall. So like today, for example, unions um, in general uh, tend to often lack militant leadership that it that some of these unions once had or that the union struggle in general might have had in the 19 teens and the 1920s etc but precisely through these red scares which can be seen as these sort of counter-revolutionary attacks on the most radical advanced elements of the trade union struggle by the, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie um, were sort of conscious attempts um, to uh, simultaneously sort of rid these unions of their radical communist elements and and subordinate and ultimately co-opt them into the sort of uh, bourgeois apparatus overall. And so today we have a lot of um, unions who are, you know, basically just apparatchiks of the Democratic Party, um, who vote for Democrats, who, who fund Democrats, support Democrats, etc. Now there are rank and files that are more militant, and in some more Democratic unions, uh, more militant leadership might get voted in. Um, but I just want to stress this sort of historical protracted effort by the capitalist class in the United States to first purge unions of radical elements, and then I think with the Reagan um, counter-revolution to purge unions from the economy as much as possible. I mean, you know, he came in, um, you know, sort of uh, firing the air traffic controller uh, unions, for example, setting the sort of tempo for the rest of his administration and for the new era that the American working class was being dragged into by the capitalist ruling class. Um, so those are just uh, some some thoughts on unions uh, throughout American history in particular. Yeah, and just to kind of throw this in as well, the bourgeoisie through Biden has openly said, now listen, okay, we're going to bring back a lot of production uh, because we can't exploit the uh, Chinese proletariat anymore. Mm -hmm. The uh, Chinese capitalists are down with that and they want to compete with us. So we're going to bring back a bunch of production. And uh, listen, you know, a, a good portion of this is actually going to be unionized. Biden has said a lot of the uh, the production coming back uh, will be union jobs. And that's not just um, uh, this word of mouth. Mm -hmm. and the reason is because uh, unions can be really, really effective in uh, stable production. And union leaders, if they're if they're if they work and they collaborate with the capitalists, uh, can play a a very significant role in keeping production steady and 
just subordinate. And so, so yeah, I think that we will see uh, actual you know union jobs coming back, but we should really be concerned with who is leading and uh, do they really represent the workers or not. Exactly. And that's why this intervention, I think, that you're doing right here is is important because as these jobs come back as unions, we've already seen this sort of momentum of these unions, you know, striking, uh, building their ranks, becoming more whatever apparent on the American political scene, etc. This sort of stuff is particularly extra important because the, <laughs> the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is going to try to defang and neuter these unions and make them work for the broader capitalist system, act as a release vow for the people who think of themselves as in the middle class, right? But they're really working class. We know that's an obs- uh, obscuration in and of itself and sort of restabilize not only production, um, but uh, but a society racked by 40 plus years of neoliberalism, which is just applied libertarianism, right? The the running rampage of the, of the capitalist class um, with no protections for the working class. So there's a certain sort of chaoticness that that just unleashing the capitalists and subordinating the working class releases on society and so there is like this at least elements of the american ruling class who see a limited use for controlled and fully co-opted unions to reemerge but they do not want those unions to get too radical or to get out of control you know and that's our struggle is to do precisely what they don't want us to do <laughs> yes absolutely all right well let's go ahead and move forward then now that we're introduced to tool You've mentioned that there were two syndicalist leagues that existed prior to the tool. What did they get wrong that the tool would eventually get right? So the tool was formed by William Z. Foster at the end of 1920, with only a few dozen other labor militants in Chicago that were remnants of his prior two syndicalist leagues, which, contrary to the dual unionists who wished to start new pure unions outside of the AFL, applied the concept of boring from within the reactionary trade unions, in order to transform them. These militants also worked alongside Foster in the 1918 meat uh, packing campaign and the 1919 Great Steel Strike, both of which made Foster the most well-known labor activist in the country. It's worth discussing the errors of the first two leagues so we can better understand the communist theory and work of the Trade Union Educational League. Foster's Syndicalist League of North America lasted from 1912 to 1914, and the International Trade Union Educational League from 1915 through mid-1917. While being a step forward for the working class in the sense that the leagues, one, overcame the left sectarian dual unionism that ideologically dominated the majority of militant workers of that era, two, put forward demands of class struggle militancy in opposition to the class collaborationism of the AFL leaders and the right-wing reformists of the Social Party of America. Three, explain the need to move beyond craft unionism to industrial unionism. Um, Four, called for solidarity between the employed and unemployed. And five, they did not shy away from calling for the need to abolish the capitalist wage system among other positive factors, of course. Um, But both of the first two leagues were ideologically syndicalist, which greatly stunted their work. And the I-Tool, the second league, was really just a repeat of the SNLI. So just kind of meshing all of the the errors together because it really reflects both of the leagues from 
1912 through 1917. And really quick, just to jump in here, um, you mentioned the word dual unionism, and perhaps some people uh, might not understand what that means. You said overcame the left sectarian dual unionism that ideologically dominated the majority of militant workers of that era. And just so people know, dual unionism, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Chase, but... um, is this basic idea that there might be a union in a given industry that's reactionary or too moderate, and then so uh, there'll be a creation of either a separate union that is sort of redundant but more militant or um, an attempt to sort of form a caucus within um, a sort of um, ideologically right-wing or revisionist or whatever um, trade union. Is that more or less what dual unionism is, or am I missing something? Uh, the first half was correct, that okay. it is uh, dual unionists were represented the revolutionary syndicalists of the IWW. They saw how backward and class collaborationist and reformist, they genuinely were, you know, the correct about this, about the AFL and the reformist socialists and the independent unions. And so, but their answer was wrong. They said, listen, we should just go start our own union, one big union, the IWW. And through militancy, we will win over the working class. And they were, the IWW, if you know anything about the history of the labor movement um, in that period and before, they were, they crushed it. They were incredibly, they were much farther more militant than the AFL. And they had uh, great success in, um, in really, uh, you know, pointing towards uh, revolution. But the, because they were sectarian, uh, they, they never were really able to develop the organization of the working class at all. And what they ended up doing was pulling all of the militant revolutionary elements uh, in the mass, which is the far, you know, the vast majority of the workers were in the AFL. They were pulling out those militant, pulling out the relatively advanced and alienating the relatively advanced from the intermediate of the backward and thus leaving the mass of workers to this endless, uh, you know, uh, the inability to actually overthrow the bourgeoisie. Dual unionists do not bore from within. They think boring from within is fundamentally uh, like class collaborationist or something. I see. So the well-intentioned and very radical IWW was creating this one big union, and totally. one, of, one of the impacts it had was to suck out, to siphon the most radical elements of other unions who should have stayed in those unions and struggled um, out of those unions and into its own separate entity, which then could, among other things, much more easily be cracked down upon. Yes, yeah, so this is left-wing communism and infantile disorder. Right? This is the le- this is one of the two lessons from or, no, not two, but one of the two main lessons from that book. Absolutely. Okay, and and and, ha- and both of us are saying hats off to the IWW. They made amazing uh, progress and advancements. We're not hating on them, but they, this is an objective error that they made. Oh yeah, revolutionary syndicalism was a step forward for the working class compared to reformist socialism. Absolutely, but it still was a step backward for the working class and compared to communism. Sure. All right, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's cool. Um, so in the spirit of learning from failure, you know, seven of the most significant errors, again, of the Syndicalist League of North America and the International Trade Union Educational League were number one, their complete lack of centralization. The locals of the leagues were totally decentralized and autonomous and didn't understand the need to work more closely in ways that would have made sense. Number two, they also did not understand the role of and need for a vanguard party. This led to a conflation of the role of the leagues, which were mass labor organizations, with the role of the advanced detachment of the working class unified in a political party. Number three, and the flip side of not understanding the role of the party was that they conversely did not understand the proper role of the trade unions in a revolutionary struggle. You know, during this time, Foster and the leagues 
greatly overestimated the unions to the point of believing that unions were inherently revolutionary, regardless of the ideology of the leadership. This resulted in an underestimation of the role of consciousness and the need for revolutionaries to develop the workers' consciousness. Number five, the programs of the two leagues convey the distinctly Bernstinian idea that the gradual growth and strengthening of the unions would lead to greater and greater levels of worker militancy and ultimately the gradual transition of society out of capitalism into some syndicalist world where either the trade unions themselves or perhaps a special labor committee would manage the new society now completely without exploitation in class struggle. Uh, number six, the leagues were not exempt from the widespread confusion on what differentiated economic from political struggle. The syndicalists, much like the anarchists, believe that political struggle was equivalent to electoralism and said uh, what was principle between the two was the economic struggle. Along these lines, failing to keep the political struggle principle to economic struggles, um, when the first inter-imperialist war broke out in July of 1814, the Syndicalist League of North America, and later the International uh, Trading and Educational League, failed to connect the economic struggles of the workers to the political struggle against imperialism. Foster, you know, himself, he told the labor militants that they shouldn't take a side or have a stance on the war because that might undermine their ability to do what was most important, which was the building up and strengthening of the labor unions. So clearly, you know, we can see that the leagues spanning 1912 and 1917 were unable to combine economic demands with political demands and really just threw out political agitation entirely. And finally, number seven, the syndicalism of the SLNA and ITUL greatly underestimated the role of the state. Now, this has two consequences. First, Foster believed that waves of general strikes alone would be enough to overthrow the bourgeois state and bourgeois dictatorship. You know, he had no conception of armed struggle necessarily becoming principle during what Lenin defined as a revolutionary situation. And secondly, uh, syndicalists like anarchists and reformist socialists fail to understand that history has again and again and again demonstrated the necessity of establishing a socialist state, right? a proletarian class dictatorship, in order to defend the revolution, consolidate the political power of the proletariat, begin socialist construction, and wage cultural revolution. And the experiences of the two socialist states, the USSR from 1917 to 1953, and China from 1949 to 1976, have demonstrated for us that under socialism, class struggle not only intensifies, but a basis for the restoration of the bourgeois rule remains in society and within the Communist Party itself. And not to go down a rabbit hole here, but the swamp of revisionism that is in the United States has made it so that there is widespread confusion among socialists as to what socialism even is. The need for taking study of revolutionary theory and history seriously and clarifying Marxist-Leninist Maoist politics today, I think, is extremely urgent. But to stay on topic here, after the proletarian revolution, the, the working class needs a temporary and transitional state in order to begin the transition of society politically, economically, and culturally. 
So the SNLA and iTool were wishfully dreaming that they thought a post-capitalist society would spontaneously uh, abolish class struggle and class society, which are what gives rise to the existence of states themselves. Absolutely. And uh, over on our other theory uh, podcast, Red Menace, we've we've done works by Lenin, especially on an infantile disorder, um, left communism and infantile disorder, um, and other works in which he discusses and makes incredibly clear <laughs> the utter limitations of spontaneous action. And the spontaneity impulse arises in mo- on, in multiple ways, right? It's it's not simply that enough people take into the street and all of a sudden revolution will happen, but it, it, it operates in these more subtle ways as well, like, you know, the trade union struggle, um, doing general strikes is enough to abolish class society or to over overturn uh, the bourgeoisie um, and various other uh, examples of, of this sort of this idea of spontaneity being the thing that in and of itself uh, can actually topple society. But of course, it can't. It literally never has. And Lenin in particular lays out uh, in excruciating detail exactly why that is. But some of the uh, errors that you mentioned here of the syndicalist period, you know, is this economics in command over politics being in command. The economic struggle in and of itself can take us uh, beyond capitalism, and and it just can't, and it just never has been able to do that. Um, and that is a sort of limitation of a merely uh, trade unionist uh, consciousness or even a spontaneous economistic um, sort of consciousness, which uh, sort of eschews the need for something like a vanguard party, which in every really successful socialist revolution – there's been a, a version of a vanguard party. And now we've never instantiated socialism historically through merely spontaneous, even trade union struggles. Um, and so you know, we have to learn from history. We can't just continually make the same mistakes over and over and over again and never learn. And that's one lesson that I think is really important. The other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to double down on is this anti-imperialist element of, you know, which is just another way of saying internationalism amongst the working class that you do not side with the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie in your own society um, against another country but that you find solidarity with that work with the workers of this other country Um, in the recent uaw strikes of course the uaw is not some perfect union that is the vanguard party or anything like that It, it it succumbs to you know various mistakes errors the momentum of its own history etc but one of the nicer things that i've i've seen come out of the mouth of somebody like Sean Fain for example is this stress on the working class as a whole, not just his union, on the tying together of social justice with economic justice, and more broadly, this internationalist um, just sort of show signs of solidarity, right? Of course, you would need a sort of political party to materially entrench these connections and make them actually work for us on a, on a deeper uh, level. But, you know, I've seen videos of French uh, labor unions, of Mexican labor unions, etc., posting videos online showing solidarity with the UAW and of course the UAW um, receives those shows of solidarity with a lot of love and appreciation etc and of course this is a, a you know it's not fully advanced and there's there's things to critique still but that's a beautiful sign and I think um, one of the big things that can happen is the a lack of this anti-imperialist perspective can lead to chauvinist 
nationalistic impulses dominating within a union. Um, you can you can betray the working classes of other countries for this nationalist idea that your country, um, you know, interest comes first over another country's interest. Right? Nationalism obscures class in this way, and that's why it's very dominant on the uh, on the right and amongst the uh, amongst the bourgeoisie in particular. Um, so yeah, those are just uh, some really interesting and important things that you mentioned. You mentioned much more, of course, but I just wanted to sort of double down and focus on on those two to uh, sort of accentuate their importance. But yeah, do you have any other uh, things to say? Or are you ready to move on? Well, uh, I do think you raised a really, really important point, actually, with the whole inter-imperialist thing, because Foster, you know, he didn't come out and say, yo, we should just like support the United States. Um, you know, we should like work with our capitalists to defeat the foreigners or something like that. No, he, he literally just said we shouldn't take a stance at all. And so it was this like this, uh, this passive, just let them have their war. And I think, you know, the same thing today could come about in a position where you're like, you know what? I don't know if China is imperialist or not. And so we shouldn't really have a stance on that. But, but th- that's not a communist position. I think we have to have a stance on the inter-imperialist war. Is it a war between imperialist countries or is it a war between capitalism and communism? You know, that's a very different struggle and we should have very different stances. So I think I just want to encourage folks um, to really do the, the work diligently, uh, study both sides, study the, the Maoist analysis of, uh, of the defeat of socialist China in 1976 and the, just the utter destruction politically, economically, culturally, all that stuff for the last, uh, 50, 45 years in China. Um, and then also, yeah, study the, well, you know, what I would understand the, re- the revisionist learns that say, no, China is socialist. Um, or maybe, maybe they're, uh, capitalist. I'm not sure, you know, maybe they're capitalist, but they got a chance to kind of get back to social, all that stuff. I would say study all these lines, take it very seriously because it's a fundamental question today, just as the question of World War One was fundamental for the SLNA and the ITIL, but they dropped the fucking ball. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this in a spirit of, of comradely, um, sort of curiosity. Mm-hmm. If, if we accept the Maoist premise, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of, but I'm open-minded about, of this idea that this China and America conflict is, you know, a deeply and profoundly inter-imperialist conflict. Um, how would that change the posture of the American working class to China? Does that, does that mean that we need to uh, be more hostile to the Chinese government or somehow try to pit the people and the workers of China against their own government? Or would it be whether it's an inter-imperialist conflict or if just a, a, an imperialist attack on a non-imperialist country, would the, would the basic approach of American workers be more or less the same, which is not playing in to the you know, anti-China rhetoric from the, the, the Democrats and Republicans and the mainstream media and the bourgeoisie, not playing into that at all? Even if we accept the Maoist premise that China is imperialist, what would be the difference in the American proletarian position to China? Is it not best for us to not get into the demonizing game of China, which the Democrats and Republicans do in different ways, and to actually outright reject this idea that China is a threat, that China is some big bad monster that needs to be taken down? And if you take this Maoist approach where you're like, well, they're not – you know, they're not, we don't hate them because of American nationalism. We dislike them because they're revisionist. What difference does that lead to in the overall posture that the American proletarian should take towards China, in your opinion? Yeah. And, and I know that you've, you know, I would say you've taken a similar position with, with Russia in the sense that you, um, on all of your podcasts, Brett, have said, listen, Russia's not socialist, right? 
But some people would disagree with you. Some people would say, no, they're still socialists, or maybe they, they still got a chance. Um, and so the, the war that's happening through Ukraine against Russia right now is a very similar situation uh, where it, it would make a difference. You know, do does the does a communist party, does the working class in the United States, and the, um, do we need to be working with the communist party of China and Russia uh, to... Uh, in you know in, to combat and to defend the socialist states and you know in the east um or or do should we actually or is the working class and even the the petty bourgeois forces in china now are they oppressed under a bourgeoisie you know it's really like who our allies and who our enemies are and um if the if it's true that the the billions of um working class the hundreds of millions of people in china uh, need to overthrow their capitalist dictatorship, then we would not want to side with the bourgeoisie of another country at the expense of a proletariat of another country. And so, like in our, like I said earlier, in a program of the tool, when we're waging a struggle, trying to teach our own working class um, uh, the ideas that actually reflect reality, you know, we need to be able to say, look at, um, look at uh, China from 1976 to 1923. Everything that's happened there, everything they they did to the countryside, um, what's happened to their uh, their urban areas and to their education institutions, the uh, the insane inequality of power and, and not to mention just like wealth between the vast majority of the Chinese proletariat and the the ruling bourgeoisie that uh, has imp- the billionaire class that has implanted itself within the Communist Party of China. You know, oh, that's what we're fighting for, and so we have to be able to. We we have to. We we should be able to give the people a, a vision, and it really does matter whether we're pointing to a country and we say, "Now that is exactly what we're fighting for," or actually, no, they're they're the enemies, and we need to side with the proletariat of, of China and Russia to overthrow their own bourgeoisies, and we you know we shouldn't be supporting the United States and in the war in any way. So yeah, I, I think there's a material difference. I haven't necessarily thought out, okay, this is the program. This is how we do it. Or mm-hmm. This is the slogan or something. But um, I think it's really, really important that we're concrete about what's actually happening in the war and what kinds of wars are being fought and such. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that's an interesting uh, a take. I would just, my, my last point here, and we, we can move on. It would just be like, I, I don't think that it would serve whether we're talking about a Vanguard party or particularly Marxist radical trade union, whatever, I just don't think it would serve anything except U.S. imperialist interests to come out and draw this dividing line between the Chinese state and the people and say, we dislike the state, um, but we support the people. I think what that would just be Trojan horsed into, what that would just get shoehorned into is just more hatred towards the Chinese government, which whatever you say about it, whether it's socialist or not, has honestly a lot of massive support among the people of China and the overthrow of their government by an external force like the United United States would be nothing but bad for the proletariat of China. And if the Chinese proletariat want to organize and take up arms and go against their own state and the, the, the government there, I think that's totally fine. And that would certainly change the calculus of what a left-wing Western organization or whatever uh, might orient itself towards. Um, but in insofar as that's not happening right now, um, I don't think hostility toward the Chinese state at all uh, on an outward rhetorical level would be helpful. Now, what you're saying is perhaps internally in an organization or within a trade union for clarification's sake, you know, assuming a sort of Marxist-Leninist-Maoist line, that it would be helpful to increase the understanding of a people within an organization 
to say, hey, we're not just trying to do what China's doing here in the U.S. We're looking for something different. Here's our criticisms of how the Chinese system where an interorganizational um, discussion is obviously, I think, an important and a line struggle could develop around it, whatever. Um, that's totally fine. But I think outward hostility towards the Chinese state, even on this technically Maoist um, point, um, would still overall just contribute to a general hostility, which would uh, bolster the the sort of cultural and ideological forces that want a real hot conflict with China, which would not serve the Chinese working class nor the American working class. But those are just my two cents. Yeah, I, I, a few things did uh, did come to mind because sure. you know your line on okay, um, say the you know this this line on you're against the capitalist state uh, chase you know you. From a Maoist perspective, you see China as a bourgeois state, but you're you're trying to be for the people. We don't really need that. Um, but that is the same line that you, I know, apply to Russia, right? Um, and and I think you're correct about that because it's a bourgeois state. And I can't support the masses of Chinese people uh, if they're exploited and oppressed by a ruling class. If I'm saying, eh, actually, the the bourgeois you, your bourgeois state is pretty good or, or maybe I don't say it's a bourgeois state mm-hmm. actually I think it's a socialist state and therefore any kind of revolution you know uh, an attempt to to build a revolution in in China I might be like wow that's kind of reactionary you mm. should you should be grateful or the same thing with uh, Russia hell you might even look like um, at Cuba and Venezuela if 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 uh, if all the countries in Central and South America um, are are socialist today then. Then we then we would look at attempts to make revolution uh, as extremely dangerous and backward as as counter revolutionary, but if those people do need to overthrow their ruling classes, then that is a that is a political stance that we as as inter, true internationalists we have to understand and have a concrete grasp on so so we know who to actually support and who you know who our friends are and who our real enemies are if that kind of makes sense yeah yeah I think that, that you made a really interesting point about. You know, by overemphasizing the socialist nature of the Chinese state, you might, in the instance of a real proletarian uprising um, against the state, um, sort of see that as like you know a CIA plot or a, a color revolution Absolutely. or something like that, which yeah. is incredibly harmful. And so I can I, I understand that. So yeah, that's a good point. And of course, this is a broader discussion. We can't talk about this all night, but yeah, I, it's cool. I, do, you know, super, yeah. I appreciate you uh, willing to struggle with me. Same, same. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move forward and, and refocus on the point of this conversation, which is. Of course, tool. So we've talked about the Trade Union Educational League, um, introduced it at least. So let's talk about the the details of the of, of tool. So where do you want to begin? Absolutely. So, all right. Beginning in November of 1920, on a cold winter night in Chicago, the tool had a very rough start. As I said, the Syndicalist League of North America peaked with 2,000 labor militants, but the tool started with two dozen workers concentrated in Chicago, and really remained in a dismal state for over a year. But two major events happened in 1921 that kept the tool from becoming Foster's third short-lived league. The first was Lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder, being issued in English and appearing in the United States in January of 1921. According to Lenin, uh, to refuse to work in the reactionary trade unions means leaving the masses under the influence of reactionary leaders, agents of the bourgeoisie, labor aristocrats, or bourgeoisified workers. Every sacrifice must be made. The greatest obstacles must be overcome in order to carry on agitation and propaganda systematically, stubbornly, insistently, and patiently 
precisely in all those institutions, societies, and associations to which proletarian or semi-proletarian masses belong, however ultra-reactionary they may be. In the trade unions and workers' cooperatives, the latter, at least sometimes, are precisely the organizations in which the masses are to be found, end quote. So what left-wing communism served to do was correct the mistaken notions held by revolutionaries across the world about how the Bolsheviks actually led their proletariat in the overthrow of the Tsar, it established the first dictatorship of the proletariat. And to the revolutionists' dismay, the Bolsheviks did not start new, pure revolutionary unions isolated from the established labor movement. They didn't ignore the immediate demands of the workers. They didn't even boycott the elections all the time. And why this was important was because all of the left-wing socialists that had become communists with the beginning of the U.S. communist movement in 1919 were firmly IWW syndicalists who wouldn't be caught dead utilizing the elections toward revolutionary ends, combining economic with political demands, or borrowing from within the reactionary trade unions. They were correct to see the AFL as a bastion of bourgeois politics and class collaborationism. But Lenin shocked the hell out of him when he said that they were flat out wrong to not be in the AFL, the filthy mainstream reactionary labor movement where all the bourgeois trade unions and right opportunists and anti-Marxists were in charge. Foster, who charged that dual unionism, you know, severed the soul from the body by pulling the military workers away from uh, the, the rest of the workers really enjoyed his first introduction to Lenin, so much so that he propagandized to the dual unionists with the pamphlet of the leading theoretician of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The second important event of 1921 was the founding of the Red International of Labor Unions, otherwise known as the Profiteurn. An American delegation to the first Congress of the Profiteurn was to be led by Earl Browder, who had joined the communist movement after being released from prison in November of 1920. Having uh, worked closely with Foster in Chicago, Browder invited Foster to Moscow as a reporter for the Federated Press. It is the it is during the first Congress of the Profiteurn that they decided the tool will be, uh, affiliate with the Red International Labor Unions and the militants of the IWW were told that they should join the AFL and work as militants through the tool. And this is where Foster's transition from syndicalism to Marxism is really completed. You know, he stays in Russia for three months, studying Marxism alongside the Bolsheviks, learning about the Russian Revolution, and witnessing the advances of the world's first socialist state. And at the end of the summer, one of the most well-known labor activists in the United States and leader of the Trade Union Educational League returns home and joins the Communist Party. In February of 1922, the tool officially become, uh, comes into existence, really, by a series of local meetings that were held simultaneously across the country. The purpose of this first drive was to establish educational groups of militants in all the basic industries and, and in all the important cities and towns. Every advanced rank-and-file worker were to be invited to hear about the formation of the militant worker organization. The established local groups were then tasked to organize the many other militants in their respective industries. Just one month later, Jack Johnstone, who was a close militant alongside Foster for the previous decade in Chicago, 
put out a call to action through the tool propaganda organ, the Labor Herald. By uh, March of 1922, Labor Herald had a circulation of 10,000, up 10 times since the fall of 1921. The League started out with a great deal of support. In March of 1922, the leaders of the Chicago Federation of Labor, uh, John Fitzpatrick and Edward Knuckles, were in favor of major aspects of the tool program to the extent that the CFL passed a resolution calling upon the president of the AFL, Samuel Gompers, to organize an international conference for the purposes of arranging the amalgamation or unification of the craft unions into single industry-specific organizations. In addition to the major backing by the CFL, writing for the April issue of the Labor Herald, Eugene Debs of the Socialist Party of America said, The Trade Union Educational League is, in my opinion, the one rightly directed movement for the industrial unification of the American workers. The June issue of the Labor Herald put out a call for the first National Conference of the Tool. And this is what it said. Militants, do you believe that organized labor should have a real rebel spirit? Do you believe that the craft unions should be amalgamated into industrial unions? Do you believe the trade union movement should have a new and militant leadership? If so, come to the National Conference of the Trade Union Educational League. It will be one of the most important gatherings in the history of the American labor movement. Quote. And in August of that year, the first tool convention was held with 45 delegates from 26 cities and towns, almost exclusively from the North, Midwest, Plains, and Northwest, with the exception of Los Angeles. The 10-point program of the tool included rejection of dual unionism, rejection of the AFL's class collaborationism, and adoption of the principle of class struggle. Industrial unionism through the amalgamation of the existing unions. Organization of the unorganized. Unemployment insurance. A working class-led labor party. The shop delegate system, which was a demand to democratize the unions. Affiliation with the RILU, or the Profintern. Recognition of Soviet Russia. And abolition of the capitalist system in the establishment of a workers' republic. So here we have the official formation of Tool. We see a William Z. Foster move from syndicalism to outright Marxism, and Tool's sort of 10-point program reflects that shift, um, sort of uh, adjusting and fixing many of the errors made in these you know, previously syndicalist uh, union attempts. And that is where we are right now. So now that we have a good grasp on the formation and the beginnings of Tool, um, in the context in which um, Tool arose, let's move on to some specific actions um, that Tool uh, participated in, um, etc. So let's start with the Railroad Shopman's Strike of 1922. Yeah, yeah. So we've done a lot of theory and a lot of politics on the front half of, of this episode. I think it was really, really important to start there, as you were saying, Brett. Um, but now, yeah, we're going to talk about the railroad workers, the miners, the ladies' garment workers, textile workers, fur workers, all these these are really, really important actual struggles that the, the tool dove into and uh, made a, signif- uh, a significant fight. So now hopefully, you know, walking through these these different struggles in the very uh, different industries that throughout the 20s will give people a really good insight. Okay, this is exactly what the tool did. 
this is what happened, and potentially this is something that we can apply in our own very uh, in our own new situation today. The uh, the capitalist crises uh, that ensued following World War One brought about the conditions for a brutal open shop offensive by the employers. And by open shop, I mean the bosses were just trying to wipe out the unions. While the war years saw a rapid increase in production, the end of the war brought about a sharp decline, and the years 1919 to 1922 saw millions of workers thrown out of jobs and one million organized workers thrown out of the AFL and independent unions combined. So within three years, there was one million less uh, organized workers. But in addition to the open shop offensive of 1919 through 1922, there was a period of intense political repression. The Palmer raids of 1919 and early 1920 saw thousands of labor militants, uh, almost exclusively affiliated with the IWW, rounded up, imprisoned, handed excessive sentences, or deported. Having begun with roughly 40,000 members in total, the raids pushed the newly established communist parties of underground only to reemerge at the end of 1922 with a unified about uh, 10,000 members. But amidst the period of the greatest defeats of the working class in the history of the U.S. labor movement up until that time, and before they even had a first Congress, the tool was able to play significant roles in several big strikes during the end phases of the post-war open shop offensive. Two of the several strikes worth noting here were the Great Coal Strike of 1922 and the Railroad Shopman Strike of 1922. On the heels of the Union being wiped out in Alabama in West Virginia's Battle of Blair Mountain, by 1922, the owners of the mines had set their sights on completely wiping out the largest, most powerful union in the United States, the United Mine Workers of America. In 1919, the UMW was 400,000 strong, but only three years, uh, the, uh, within three years, the union was literally fighting for its life, and 600,000 miners were brought out on strike in defense. So Frank Farrington was president of the Illinois chapter of UMW, who later proved to be a paid agent by the Peapotty Coal Company. You tried to break the strike by signing a backstabbing agreement, but the effort of the tool not only saved the strike, but literally saved the entire organization of the miners that had taken them three decades to build. So I want to cover the miners' struggle later on, uh, so I'm going to leave it here, and I'll return to it after I talk about the setbacks faced by the tool in 1923, but I just wanted to mention it because they played a major role in this fight alongside the railroad shopman strike of 1922. The open shop drive of the capitalists culminated in the great railroad shopman's strike. What happened was the Transportation Act of 1920 set up a railroad labor board, basically to force decisions upon the union. The owners of the railways pointing to the hard times of the economy, requested that the labor board approve a 10% slash of the workers' wages, which it did. The, the board also, unsurprisingly, was unable to do anything about the trend of the government to contract work out to non-union employers. In 1921, the board sanctioned a 12% pay cut, a reduction of protection against peace work, 
a modification of rights around eligibility for seniority and the establishment of company unions, among other major concerns of the workers. In July of 1922, the workers had had enough and 400,000 railroad shopmen uh, walked out. The owner and their government, uh, the owners and their government, responded to the strike viciously with a, with sweeping injunction that criminalized everything from picketing to writing in a letter or publishing in a newspaper or communicating by word of mouth anything that attempted to persuade workers to strike. They literally criminalized every possible act of solidarity. Having already begun a campaign with the slogan, Amalgamation or Annihilation, through the bi-monthly paper Railroad Amalgamation Advocate, and Foster's widely read pamphlet, The Railroader's Next Step, Foster went on a national tour to try and shore up support for the workers, and in an effort to prevent Foster from speaking in Denver, Colorado, um, Colorado State Rangers kidnapped him at his hotel, jailed him for a night, drove him to Cheyenne, Wyoming, only then to have the sheriff dump him a few miles outside of Torrington, Nebraska. But when the uh, injunction was passed down, the tool launched a campaign for a general strike of all the railroad brotherhoods to then be followed by sympathetic strikes in other countries. The Communist Party, too, issued a leaflet to the railroad, uh, railroad workers. In a labor struggle, it read, the government is never neutral. It always serves only the capitalist class, and you must resist all its mandates to the very limits of your power. Over 500,000 miners are now on strike. Their cause is also your cause. You should have gone on strike with them long ago, but it is not too late now. You must stay on strike until they win all their demands, then they should stay out until you gain all yours. United, you, the working class, can crush your enemies, the capitalist class, with its brutal and murderous government, and with all its prostitute judges, presidents, presidents congressmen, and senators, end quote. The uh, toll campaign and the Communist Party's agitation were both a far cry from the AFL's simple verbal denunciation of the most reactionary injunction a judge could make against strikers. But to wrap this story up, in the face of a waning strike, the refusal of all the brotherhoods to join the strike, and the continued recruitment of strikebreakers, the Willard Jewell settlement, which was a prototype for the coming Baltimore in Ohio, or the B&O plan, was agreed upon and 225,000 of the workers had returned to work by mid-October. While seniority rights were protected with nearly all the major railroads, all of the railroad workers saw their wages slashed and many of the roads saw their unions wiped out completely and replaced with company unions in which the workers had to join if they wanted a job. Later on, Foster would say that it was this strike that was the beginning of one of the worst decades of class collaborationism in the history of the U.S. labor movement. Following the climax of the post-war open shop drive until the beginning of the Great Depression in 1929, the leadership of the labor movement actively promoted collaboration between management and the unions for the purpose of increasing labor productivity. The speed-up scheme that was the B&O plan Right, based on the Willard Jewell plan from the strike, 
was the employer's means of developing the workers' productive power under the guise of scientific management. Instead of mobilizing the mass of workers into battle against the capitalists, the opportunist and chauvinist leadership sold the unions to the bosses in exchange for their being allowed to maintain their privileged positions as union leadership. In fact, President William Johnson of the International Association of the Machinists greatly influenced the Willard-Jewell Agreement. As we will continue to see throughout the 1920s, the misleadership of the AFL and the independent socialist unions pushed union management cooperation as a means of preserving the unions from the employer's advances. President of the AFL, Samuel Gompers, emphasized that this kind of cooperation could be a win for the bosses, the workers, the stockholders, and the public, which I would say sounds a lot like the trash that came from Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters when he recently said, unions are good for workers, good for the economy, and good for business. <laughs> yeah, that, that says that says so much. Like the Gomper said that this cooperation could be a win for the bosses, the stockholders. And the public and the workers. It's yeah. either or, motherfucker. It's not what's good for the bosses is not good for the workers. What's good for the stockholders is often, as we're seeing with something like, I don't know, climate change, not good for the public. So this is this class collaborationism. This is this obscurantism, this mystification of the real conflict, the real contradiction, and a melting away, an attempted melting away of these actual contradictions, which actually don't solve the contradictions, but just tries to bury them under rhetoric. Um, and they come out out in other places at other times um, but yeah linking it up with with more modern attempts at this exact thing where it's it, it is this attempt to you know collaborate with the entire capitalist system to try to find what's good for all of us you know let's all work together for the benefit of all of us and that again um, sort of um, obscures the fundamental contradiction between the bosses and the workers at the very least so yeah very fascinating fascinating history and the railroad shopman strike of 1922 which you just uh, beautifully laid out for us was another thing that you know I was not aware of. There are a million strikes throughout labor history, of course, and then no one person can know all of them, or maybe some scholars do, but I certainly don't. But here's another example of something that um, not only do a lot of people not know about, but as we were talking maybe um, before we started recording, it is a concerted and conscious effort to usher these elements of our history um, completely sort of out of the out of the the picture. You don't learn about this stuff in school. You don't even really learn about it in college. Um, and and that's not an, that's not an accident, right? These more radical elements of this history. It's not an accident. So part of our job as I think Marxists and as educators as organizers is to you know, sort of archaeologically <laughs> dig up this history and present it back to modern day workers and say, here's a tradition. Here's some stuff we can learn from. Here's some failures. Here's some mistakes. Here's what class collaborationism leads to, right, etc. And so a uh, great job at doing that. But let's go ahead and, and move forward now that we understand that that one action. Um, let's go to talk about some setbacks and the uh, united front split, if you will. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and the main reason why I brought the railroad uh, shotman strikes of 1922 and what was really because of the B&O plan is based upon the willard Jewell statement. And the B&O plan is the, it's the main kind of expression of class collaborationism that the AFL and the um, independent and socialists uh, use that, that foster the tool. It's one of their main enemies throughout the entire tour. So that's the real main reason why I, I brought that um, strike in. But yeah, the setbacks, um, because the tool was able to put forward some significant immediate demands of the workers and were also 
fairly successful at exposing the right opportunism of the reactionary leadership, the rank and file of the unions rallied around the tool, and 1922 through 1923 saw a major surge in resolutions from AFL locals for amalgamation of the craft unions. Support of the tool had grown so much that the Second Congress of the Tool in September of 1923 had 103 delegates from Lindy cities. Overall, the workers had responded positively to the tool's call for militancy amongst the rank and file. Yet, despite the significant leap in resolutions for amalgamation, a labor party, and recognition of the Soviet Union, the tool would find themselves with few allies by the end of 1923. Earlier that year, Debs comes out against the tool. Debs was never one for struggle against the right, and his capitulation in this instance was really no different from his consistent capitulation in the Socialist Party of America. But socialist leadership in the needle trade unions were tired of the tool and the communists trying to transform their conservative unions. And Debs was persuaded into thinking that the socialists really did have the workers' best interests at heart. Around the same time, uh, Gompers began a personal anti-communist campaign that literally wouldn't stop until he was dead. So he knew that the alliance between Fitzpatrick of the Chicago Federation of Labor and Foster and the tool was significant and had to be stopped. So he did everything in his power to split the United Front. He started by pulling funding from the CFL, which was literally Fitzpatrick's paycheck um, and the rent uh, that paid for the office. It was not long until Fitzpatrick, under pressure from Gompers, decided to abandon both the drive for industrialization of the craft unions and the entire project of founding a labor party with the communists. And when the Illinois AFL convention rolled around, he literally voted against every one of the tool's proposed resolutions simply because Foster and the tool supported it. To top it all off, an expulsion campaign was officially launched, and the anti-tool reaction demonstrated its strength at the Portland Convention in which William F. Dune was expelled simply for being a known member of the Communist Party. So this was the beginning of a new and extremely difficult period for the communists in the labor movement. Yeah, very interesting. Now, Eugene Debs is a very complicated and interesting figure who we can learn from both the failures and the successes of his politics overall. Um, I, I really think it's long past due that Rev Left does a full episode um, just breaking down Eugene Debs's story, his life, and learning precisely from those um, mistakes and those successes uh, within his personal politics and his personal life story. So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm going to be uh, looking forward to to covering in, in future episodes. I was going to say... Sir, go ahead. Well, uh, before you move on from Debs, uh, Foster in his first autobiography from Brian to Stalin, which I, I definitely want to recommend um, later as well, but he actually talks about you know the three great syndicalists. And so I think it's important to say that, that Debs um, played a, a positive, uh, primarily positive role earlier in the the struggle of the working class. Um, uh, he, he was uh, a true American syndicalist. And so I think that, um, yeah, I do think that for a period he played a positive element. Um, and, and just because, you know, uh, you know, any, any one of us might play a positive element in this period, but then a primarily negative uh, element in, in, in a later period doesn't discard the earlier uh, positive aspects. But yeah, if you're, 
I really recommend people checking out Foster's from Brian to Stalin on bandthought.net. Then you can read a little bit more about um, Debs' syndicalism. Very interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, another thing I wanted to mention really quickly is over at Gorilla History, and I also released it on RevLeft. We did an interview with, um, I mentioned this before, a, a communist who um, was involved in union struggles throughout the 70s and 80s um, named John Melrod, who wrote an entire memoir about his time there. He actually got prostate cancer from being exposed to toxic toxic chemicals in these factories that he would go in to try to unionize and importantly relevant to this part of the discussion um, he talked about his his fights within unions with reactionary members of the unions you know anti-communists who would physically threaten and even assault communist union workers within the same union he talked about one time going to a bar and one of his fellow union members pulled a gun on him because he was a he was a member of the white people's party um but he was in the union and he was saying you commies need to get out of our union and he talks about how he dealt with that so to have like a first person on the ground um sort of uh, portrayal of what it's like to be a communist within an organization which of course like the broader society has reactionary elements and how you struggle with them um definitely check out check out that those interviews in, in that book because i think we have a lot to learn from that but um, let's go ahead and move on forward, and I think the next topic we want to touch on is the struggle of the miners. So take us there. All right, let's go. So it just so happened that the uh, bituminous and anthracite contracts were set to end in March 1922. And due to the sharp decline in the need for coal following the war and the recent defeats in both Alabama and West Virginia, the operators were fairly confident at strike could be easily defeated. So they, did, they decided not to maintain the 1921 rates and slash the wages. In response to the attack, 600,000 miners struck in what was the largest miner strike in U.S. history and the first simultaneous walkout of anthracite and bituminous works uh, in the United States. So socialist Alexander Howitt would urge all out unity for the win while Gompers was trying to recruit scabs and expelling supporters of his opposition. The Utah miners, interesting enough, asked the AFL if they could join the strike. Uh, they were rejected, but uh, decided to go out on strike anyways. And the fight in Utah would actually have the workers armed to the teeth while state militias and company guards set up machine guns surrounding the strikers' tent colonies. And remember, this is over whether workers under capitalism should have the right to unionize or not. In June, a full-on battle ensues in Illinois between strikers and company guards and scabs. And in July, miners are slain in West Virginia. Lewis decides, the president of the OMW, uh, decides this is all getting out of hand here, makes concessions with the operators, and calls all the miners back to work. But out from the 1922 strike, with Howitt still expelled, two groups emerge in opposition to Lewis. Uh, Brophy's Central Pennsylvania District 2 and Foster and the Tool in the Communist Party. So following the 1922 strike, Foster calls a meeting to form a Lewis opposition in Pittsburgh, February of 1923. This was supposed to be the beginning of the United Front work at the Miners' Union. Following the meeting between the progressive and the communist, 
they then organize a progressive international conference, right, a pick of the UMW, at which a uh, progressive miners international committee was established and organized around an eight-point program. Unfortunately, though, by the time the second conference of the Miners Progressive International Committee comes around in June of 1923, Brophy gets cold feet with communists and temporarily joins the Lewis Farrington Front. So Brophy's split from the tool and the communists is exactly what Lewis needed. And Lewis went on a terror campaign, hiring thugs and gangsters to assault the rank and file and leadership of the Miners Progressive International Committee. The UMW convention in January of 1924 was one long fistfight with a bunch of expulsions. But immediately following the convention, the Progressive International Committee organized a large gathering for the reinstatement of Howitt and launched a campaign against the wage cuts in uh, unemployment. So the tool actually established one of the first unemployed councils during this campaign, which was key given that thousands of miners were still laid off. In, in August of that year, Brophy swings back to the side with Howitt, the progressive, and the tool, and the uh, pick forces unite in what was called the Save the Union campaign. This is a really big, important campaign in the history of the tool. So in 1925, the tool was carrying on the Save the Union campaign against both Lewis and the operators when anthracite contract uh, expired in September. Its key demands being the removal of Lewis, a 20% increase in wages, protection from unemployment, and a campaign to organize the hundreds of thousands of non-unionized miners. The tool pushed for a united strike of both anthracite and bituminous miners, and then for both miners to organize the unorganized fields. But Lewis, you know, the leader of the union, did everything in his power to prevent this from happening. In September of 1926, Lewis signs an agreement and sends the workers back into the mines. By this time, having started with 600,000 members in the UMW in 1920, Lewis has overseen the diminution of the membership to somewhere between 60 to 150,000. The progressives and the communists had met in the summer of 1926 to plan their next steps against Lewis. Brophy and Howitt represented the non-communists and Voise, Hapgood, and Coyle, the communists. But the 1927 convention was a massive defeat for the Progressive Committee. Lewis shut down every resolution raised by the PIC, uh, solidified his dictatorial power in the Union, and Hapgood was nearly killed by Lewis's goons back at his hotel. Jesus. Yeah. So despite the development of these conditions within the UMW and in the mines, Foster continued to say that the Save the Union uh, was still the correct slogan. In April of 1927, 175,000 bituminous miners were brought out on strike in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Uh, reporters from bourgeois newspapers would visit the company towns and be completely shocked uh, to find what they said was hell in Pennsylvania. They could not believe the extent to which the coal and iron police were brutalizing the picketers and their families. 
the conditions of the union-made tent colonies for evicted strikers, the general serfdom of the company towns. Despite Lewis signing an agreement in September of 1927, the toll of the pick pushed to continue the strike until victory. Uh, but in, in response to the call, you know, more miners joined walk, uh, the walkout. Um, and by July of 1928, the strike was hanging by a thread and the UMW was completely wiped out from entire regions. So in seven short years, Lewis had destroyed the most powerful union in the United States. And the effort from the tool in the UMW during these years I think gives us a few takeaways. First, had this organization of militant workers not been united to organize against the reactionary leadership of Lewis and Farrington, and at times the vacillation of Brophy, the UMW would clearly have went from the strongest union of the United States in 1920 to being non-existent. It would have completely been wiped out. The working class organization that took the miners three decades to build was saved because the communists allied with the progressive elements and mobilized the mass of the rank and file against the class collaborationist right-wing leadership and around the immediate needs of the workers, which were they need to organize the unorganized miners, receive a significant raise in their wages, develop some protection from unemployment, and democratize a union that was blatantly dictatorial. But Foster and the Tool also made some mistakes here that we should learn from as well. The Save the Union movement seems to have carried on for far too long. Beginning in 1925, okay, the strike was defeated and the union crushed by the middle of 1928. So while it was correct to launch the Save the Union campaign through the PIC, this progressive uh, committee, the fact that the UMW was now non-existent in the vast majority of the mines, Lewis had just spent years shoring up his power and preventing even a word of criticism or opposition to be spoken at conventions, and tens of thousands of oppositional workers had now been expelled. The conditions had developed where it would have made sense to transition the Save the Union campaign into a drive for a politically independent union that would have put forward all the key demands of the strike much earlier. So this is what happens when uh, happens in September of 1928 with the founding of the National Miners Union. But, you know, with all the momentum of the strike, it would have been more effective to launch the new union earlier. And potentially they could have saved not only the strike, but carried on a successful unionization drive. And after we talk about the textile workers, you know, I'm going to dispel this myth that the Unity League proves the dual unionists right all along, which is 100% wrong. But the point here is that conditions and contradictions aren't unchanging, and communists need to be able to identify when the situation makes it so new tactics are called for. And while it is correct to see that dual unionism alienates the most advantaged workers from the mass of workers, and that work has to be done in the mainstream labor movement, for example, it, like, it would have been ridiculous for the communists to skip the work of the of the tool and try and you know, the Educational League, and try and organize the miners into a new miners union without the conditions necessitating. You know, there will come moments where it is correct to establish unions politically independent from the reactionary and opportunist leadership, but the key is to properly grasp when the situation calls for a new union uh, and when it does not. 
Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this whole little chapter in, in Tool's history and our own history really does show that the, the struggle within these unions is, is essential. It's ongoing. It's it's real. It happens. Um, and the dictatorial versus democratic union sort of bifurcation is an important sort of way to, to understand this issue. I think a lot of people from the outside who don't have a lot of knowledge of labor history and, and don't have any experience within labor unions might sort of naively conclude that more or less, even if the ideological um, advancement isn't sharp, that, that the trade union and the leaders and the rank and file are more or less on the same page, and that is very, very far from the case in many, many instances. Um, and I think this little, this little part uh, certainly highlights that. So now that we have a good grasp on you know this the tools efforts in in relation to miners struggles let's move on to the needle trades maybe talk about what the needle trades even are and then go into tools efforts uh with the the needle trades Yeah I mean I mean really simply there there were so many different crafts that uh worked with uh worked with needles and so we we may see much less of that today because of the the development and revolutionization of a technology, but they really were just various different kinds of, of, of uh, workers that um, worked with machines that had needles. So you know there, are, but in the needle trades, you know there are many battles. I'd say in um, so many different unions that I wish we could talk about. Uh, it's a really fascinating um, industry in which the tool fought. But I, I want to briefly talk about two of the tool efforts in the needle trades before touching a bit on the textile industry. So the first one was the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, which, because of anarchist and communist militancy, had an incredibly aggressive rank and file. You know, the anarchists eventually sided with the conservative socialist uh, socialist party uh, because, you know, Russia should have floated to a classless, stateless society. But the communist rank and file women of the ILGWU really give us, I think, an opportunity to understand what proletarian feminism could mean for us uh, today in a fully developed capitalist country. Whereas the mining industry was almost entirely men, the garment workers were mostly women. And until the International Fur Workers Union rallied behind the openly communist leadership of Ben Gold, you know, the entire needle trades industry was under the conservative leadership of the socialists in the Socialist Party. So because the communists had rejected dual unionism and instead bore within the existing trade union movement, the tool was able to build a progressive communist alliance that would transform from a small opposition movement into a mass movement, particularly in the ILGWU. Socialists Sigmund and Dubinsky were never pleased with the influence of the revolutionaries and growing militancy of the rank and file. But, as Mao said, when you have the correct political line in the form of agitation, methods of work and tactics, you know, everything else will fall in place. Communists Rose Wardus and Dora Lipschitz got to work early on in the ILGWU during a time when the manufacturers were slashing wages to the bone and contracting work out to uh, non-union shops. Sigmund, the socialist, thought the answer was to implement union management collaboration. But the workers were educated on why that was not the answer to their real issues of conditions, organization, and wages. Sigmund, of course, expels the locals where the rank and file was the most militant. And in February of 1924, the workers' strike 
against both the socialist leadership and the attacks of the employers. But the, uh, the early 1923 to 1924 expulsion policy backfired on the opportunist uh, union leadership amidst deteriorating conditions in the industry in capitulation by the socialists in the 1924 strike to bosses, the progressive communist alliance was able to sweep the 1924 uh, ILGWU convention. In 1925, the right-wing socialists went on uh, the offensive, again expelling half of the union because a May Day event organized by the tool had simply invited communist, uh, I think it's, you pronounce the name, Boisei Olgan, I'm sure, as a speaker. And so the first joint action committee of the needle trades industry was founded, and this was the united front through which the progressives and communists would fight the right. Long story short, a very important strike was carried on in 1926. The small opposition movement had developed into a mass movement, controlling the vast majority of the locals, but the socialists still maintained control over the international. The 1926 strike was against wage slashes across the industry, the contracting out of work to non-union shops, and a very important issue of the employers wanting reorganization rights in which they could fire 10% of the union throughout the year. Obviously, you know the reason they wanted the reorganization rights was to be able to fire the relatively advanced and militant workers whenever they needed to do so. So now under the leadership of the Joint Action Committee, the strike was able to win significant short-term wins. It won numerous partial victories. But the committee made significant errors and conceded to the employers the right to reorganize. So this put the Progressive Communist Alliance in a much weakened position. Despite verbally supporting the strike the whole time, Sigmund and the rightists now came out against the strike and Having remained in control of the General Executive Board, they purged the ILGWU of the progressive and communist forces. It was a serious defeat for the left, and one that would be hotly debated within the Communist Party. According to the Central Executive Committee of the Communist Party at that time, uh, significant rightist errors were made within the party work. Wrong policies by the left-wing leaders during the strike contributed to deprive the strike of its needed militancy and effectiveness. Amongst the activists in the unions, there was an incorrect theory that you can't fight on two fronts at once against bosses and bureaucrats. This led to a false sense of unity with the right-wing socialists and gave a free hand to the misleaders to weaken the strikers' capacity and morale. Number two, the united front relations between Lewis Hyman, who was the leader of the progressives in the Joint Action Committee, and the party leaders was deficient in that Hyman acted as though he was against the strike the whole time. So there was a, a serious failure by the communists to seize the opportunity for leadership. And they, they really sat back, watched as the strike was and, and watched as, as the strike was weakened. So number three, there was a general underestimation of the leading role of the party in the union work. And this was demonstrated by a failure on the part of the activists to maintain close relations with party committees, um, failure to build a system of party fractions within the Lady Garments Union, and failure to execute party advice or decisions. So lots of issues here, but I think this fight is actually still a good example on one hand 
of what's possible when communists unite with progressives in a progressive communist opposition to the rightist leadership of the unions. But it also demonstrates, again, the need for revolutionary theory and for the development of correct political lines. You know, we shouldn't willy-nilly start a militant minority organization today in the trade union movement and think we're going to magically oust the opportunists and the chauvinists, right? We really do need to study revolutionary theory so that our work can most effectively serve the building up of the vanguard and the development of the larger revolutionary movement. Uh, the, the fight, however, didn't end, the, uh, end there. Progressive Hyman and communist Wardis joined to establish a national organization committee of the ladies' garment workers, and eventually that committee led to the founding of the Trade Union Unity League's Needle Trades Workers Industrial Union in 1928. But that's a story for another time. Yeah, very interesting. Another important chapter in labor history, American labor history, that we have to learn from the mistakes, the successes, the you know united front with progressives when when the strategy calls for that, uh, etc. Very important stuff. As just a personal note, I mean, this is only tangentially related to the topic at hand, but you know, sort of, somewhat, was the 1911 triangle triangle shirtwaist factory fire. I bring this up only because my daughter, who's in high school, uh, recently came home. And um, whenever she learns something in history, I try to engage with it. You know, what did you learn today, et cetera, and try to build on it. And she talks about, like, how she learned about this triangle shirtwaist factory fire, which, of course, resulted in the death of over, like, 100 women and girls and even, like, two dozen men. Um, that's why doors today open outward instead of inward, etc. But I use it as a wonderful opportunity to sort of explain to her um, proletarian feminist organization and protest that came in the wake of the factory fire, um, how workers are, are mistreated, you know, what this period of labor history was like for the average worker, etc. So it's just one of those nice fatherly moments. I know you're a father too of, of obviously children who are much younger than my daughter. Um, but one of those beautiful moments where your child comes home, learns something from school, and you can take that and deepen their understanding, broaden it out. And of course, with my daughter, who's very interested in sort of, you know, feminist politics, naturally, um, I get to tie this labor struggle um, with this sort of proletarian feminist struggle, etc., and, and and teach her that as well. So I don't know. It's just a kind of a cute moment I had with my daughter that this uh, this section made me think of for what it's worth. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I would I would just say like you you know we really lack stories of of militant uh, women workers fighting against uh capitalists and patriarchy. And so I think yeah, I I'd love to hear her thoughts actually on the the struggle in the ladies garment workers and also the upcoming what we're going to talk about the fur workers. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Actually, you know, she's such a articulate, intelligent young woman. Um I would love to bring her on maybe for a Patreon episode. Um, and, and have her just talk about, you know, stuff that she's learning and her thoughts on it, because I'm continually surprised and shocked that, <laughs> you know, of, of how, um, intricate her thinking is. And, uh, absolutely. I, yeah, That's dope. Give myself a pat on the back a little bit for that, but it's mostly, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. mostly her, <laughs> but all right, let's go ahead and get into, um, tools efforts in the textile industry, if you will. Yeah. And my bad, actually, um, one more in the needle industry. These are the fur workers. Oh, sure. and then we'll yes. Hit, um, then with the, the textile. Absolutely. So. Yeah, so the tool in the needle industry was mostly successful with some errors and defeats. In the ILGWU, as we just talked about, the minority left opposition became the mass movement of the workers, but was then defeated by the right-wing socialists who had maintained control over the international. 
the left-wing and the amalgamated clothing workers of America were never able to have the influence that the tool had in the other needle trade unions at all. But in the International Fur Workers Union, the left-wing was able to fully win and keep control. So in the story of the fur workers, it was Isidore Cohen and Morris Kaufman that represented the right-wing socialist union leadership. Ben Gold and Aaron Gross were the representatives of the communists. In April of 1925, half of the fur workers were thrown out of work. And so the furriers struck, but they elected Ben Gold to lead the strike, not the Socialist International. While the union leadership was emptying its bank account on gangsters to intimidate and terrorize the striking workers, it was the communists that were mobilizing the workers on the picket line and in standoffs against the employers, the cops, the National Guard, the reactionary socialists, and their fucking goons. Yes, the reformist socialists, you know, the peaceful transition socialist people, would use union dues money to pay gangsters to brutalize and stab and brass-knuckle punch working-class women striking for more money, a shorter work week, the right to unionize, and actual democracy within the union. My God. But with mass support for gold in the communist leadership of the strike, the furriers were able to withstand some of the most violent means of repression, and they won the 1926 strike. So gold had already been hospitalized uh, back in, I think it was like 1924 or 23, I'm not sure, um, and had to receive 11 stitches on the head from Cohen and Kaufman's goons, during a fight that erupted at a meeting uh, of a union local. But after the 1925 through 26 strike, a couple of gangsters showed up to Gold's office uh, with a gun in hand, and uh, they were demanding back pay for work they did for Cohen and Kaufman, because now Gold was in charge. Uh, Gold, who was staunchly against uni uh, using thugs, was able to get a signal out to the workers who immediately walked off the job it was the minutes, hundreds of fur workers had grabbed the gangsters, brutalized them down a flight of stairs, mm. and threw their asses out in the streets. Let's go. And so from that point on, union workers would take turns standing guard at the union offices, willing to defend their communist leadership by any means necessary. Mm. Yeah, but the fight wasn't over. Mm. So the AFL decided to lend a hand to the socialists in their fight to prevent the communists from continuing what was the most militant union in the history of the labor movement in the United States. And the militancy, the bravery, the revolutionary spirit and heroism of the furriers had not even peaked. Following the strike, the years 1926 through 1928 were full of fierce battle for the furriers. The AFL completely out of any normal routine, told Gold that they needed to investigate the affairs of the union. This was very interesting, given that the workers had just won a major and successful strike, including a strike that won, for the first time, a 40-hour work week, five-day week. Wow. And so, yeah, exactly. Uh, and after a committee interrogated the workers over whether they were in any way connected to the Communist Party, the entire leadership and left-wing rank-and-file were expelled. So, interesting enough, 
Whereas the left wing of the garment workers were expelled for losing the strike, the left wing of the furriers were expelled for winning their strike. <laughs> this attack from the bourgeois trade unionists and the reformist socialists brought the workers out in mass. Six weeks of street battles ensued, and this was by far the bloodiest of strikes the furriers had seen, and that is saying something given the repression they had already faced. So the industrial squad, alongside gangsters who were on the socialists' payroll, slashed and beat the women picketers. The police would ram their vehicles straight into the picket lines in an attempt to run over the strikers. Despite all this, plus rubber hoses, blackjacks, nightsticks, the almost all women's union refused to let the violence subdue them. This extraordinary heroism of the strikers needs to be uplifted as one of our greatest examples of proletarian feminism. One day, 40 pickets were imprisoned on Welfare Island, but when the union came to pay their bail, they refused to even let the union funds be exhausted by the payment of their fines. You know, this only stirred the workers on even more. And so the majority of the rank-and-file support remained for the communist-led joint board who had been expelled. Um, at the 1927 convention, all right, the joint board, uh, I'm sorry, the joint committee run by the AFL, the socialists, prevented the communist-led joint board from entering the doors. And it was these conditions in which the communist-led joint board was forced to act as an independent union. In January of 1929, um, after having won the five-day, 40-hour work week, not as the socialists had tried by begging legislators to serve in the interests of the workers, but through militant strikes and class struggle, the vast majority of the furriers joined workers in other needle trade unions, including the National uh, Organization Committee of the Ladies' Garment Workers that we just talked about, to form the Needle Trades Workers Industrial Union, right? The NTWIU uh, of the tool, the, the Unity League. And they started with 22,000 members. Wow. That is, yeah, that's, a fa I mean, gut-wrenching but fascinating element of, of our history. Um, the, the fact that you have these fucking people brutalizing women, brass knuckle punching working class women who are on strike. Absolutely disgusting. Um, on a recent Patreon episode I did, I discussed this sort of old idea of the union thug, right? This sort of, I don't know, pseudo lumpen or outright lumpen element um, within uh, various unions. You know, that could be geared in different directions, of course, um, some positive and some negative. But basically this idea of, of, of backing up, whether that's a revolutionary socialist or communist organization or a militant trade union with these sort of – uh, lumpen elements that can harass, intimidate, and and uh, seek revenge on those who, you know, would do something like brass knuckle punch a woman who is on strike. Uh. I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on this idea of the old classic trope of the the union thug, and and how much uh, usefulness does something like that have in the modern day, in your opinion? Um, I mean, I think we should just be conscious of like of what time period whatever, you know, this uh, union thug stuff was going on, who was in charge of the unions, because as I just said, like, you know, these revisionists, these reformist socialists, they genuinely used the dues money from the workers, the workers paid to be in the union, to to they employed people to stab them God damn. Um, and to, 
to work with the cops in the National Guard in ramming their trial. I mean, so Disgusting. I think it's it is actually a part of our history, um, and we we just need to be conscious of you know who was doing it and why. Right. Exactly. Um, I, I think it's very different from, you know, some of the, the important uh, fights against scabs, right? As we were talking about with the miners, you know, the scabs had brought their weapons and the miners had brought their weapons and um, the miners were, were very seriously. You're not fucking going in this mine. Yeah. And um, and so I so I think we have to actually uh, really understand the context of, of what someone's like saying. Uh, there is a there's a weird just kind of general trope, uh, but but it's very true that that. Uh, liberal and revisionist uh, union leaders have employed people to attack the workers. And the, those are enemies of the working class. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of crazy. You know, of course you hear about like the Pinkertons and you hear about these efforts yeah. by the bosses to inflict violence on striking workers. Um, but yeah, rarely do we think about this idea that union leadership and the bureaucracy could use the union dues by workers to set you know, scumbags um, on them to physically assault them. Um, yes. that, that's absolutely wild. All yeah, right. And that's in our future as well. Yeah, and definitely. All this stuff I, I try and mention, you know, not to just like talk about the past, but to say there are things uh, in this that are our future and we should be really conscious um, of those, especially those who are really serious about saying, you know what? Um, I, I'm not worried about retiring. You know, I am, I'm not worrying about trying to find a career. Mm-hmm. I want to become a labor militant and I want to fight the capitalists. I don't oh, want to yeah. fight the, the opportunists, you know? So we should really know our history. So we, uh, we know how to fight them effectively. And just to really quickly just mention the fact that in the past week or two with the UAW strike alone, we've seen scabs use their vehicles to run over striking workers. And we even saw a yeah. reactionary, um, driving by a picket line, hurling slurs, getting out and physically attacking striking workers. In that case, the striking workers dusted that boy off. But, um, yeah, yeah these are real threats. And so, and, and we see them in the last week in American <laughs> 2023 reality as well as a hundred years ago. So worth, uh, worth thinking about for sure. But uh, let's go ahead and move into the last section, I believe, of – and, of course, there are so many stories that by necessity and length of time we're going to have to leave out, as you've mentioned before. Um, but the, uh, the the tools efforts regarding the uh, uh, textile um, workers. Absolutely. So uh, in 1923, less than 100,000 of 1 million textile workers were organized. By the mid-1920s, the southward movement of textile mills – for cheap, unorganized labor was well on its way to the point that in 1925, middle of the decade, there were more spindles in southern mills than in New England. Northern manufacturers, of course, began to use southern competition as an excuse to slash wages, but the manufacturer offensive to increase profits by reducing wages, expanding workload, and increasing hours in the work week was met with resistance. Patterson, New Jersey, had already become known for its great history of battles between textile workers and the manufacturers when the years 1912-13 and 1919 added a few more heroic struggles to its list. But by 1924, the only union left in the area was the craft-based Associated Silk Workers, so in response to this, uh, the announcement of a wage slash, the ASW called a strike. But 
It was swiftly defeated due to the ASW's narrow craft unionism. The tool attempted to get the rank and file to push the leadership of the ASW to expand the strike and their union to include the relatively less skilled crafts of the textile industry in the, you know, in the same region. But even after the defeat of their strike, the ASW leadership resisted the demands for industrial unionism. The tool was also active in Willimantic, Connecticut uh, strike, which began in January of 1925. Willimantic was a company town under the tyranny of the American Thread Company. And the United Textile Workers, the UTW, had about 35% of the workers unionized in the town. When the company announced a 10% wage cut in January of 1925, UTW called the workers out on strike. But just as in the Patterson 1924 strike, the UTW held a defeatist attitude toward organizing the lower-skilled women workers. The tool stepped in midsummer and called for the expansion of both the strike and the union with the slogan, Organize and Fight. But the UTW surrendered to the manufacturers instead and eventually called off the strike in April of 1926. Less than 10 miles down the road from Patterson, New Jersey, was Passaic. And while the UTW was pulling the struggle in Patterson backward, the tools United Front Textile Committee was leading the largest strike under communist leadership during the 1920s uh, here in Passaic. So, unlike the craft unionists, the tool organized both wool and silk workers, skilled and unskilled, for a total of 15,000 striking workers. This was a great opportunity for Tool because both the IWW and amalgamated textile workers had failed to unionize Passaic in 1919. And with the UTW completely absent from the town, the Tool's textile committee was able to lead the charge to organize the unorganized. In January of 1926, a worker on the textile committee was fired, and thousands of workers responded to the Tool's call to walk off the job. The strikers were composed of 39 nationalities, primarily divided into four different main languages. And while 50% of the strikers were women, the women workers who were paid less than the men and forced to work the night shift were on the front lines from start to finish. While facing police terror and horses and clubs and fire hoses with freezing water, the women led the mass meetings strike committees, working in unemployed women's councils, local and national relief efforts, chants and songs on the picket lines, and much, much more. They even mobilized a children's victory playground for when the kids were on the picket line or agitating in the streets in groups of three for the strike. The, the police and National Guard, though, they didn't care that they were clubbing children pickets and strollers with babies in them. God damn. They were there to serve the manufacturers, which meant ending the strike by any means necessary. Much more could be said about the strike, but I want to focus in on the events in which the tool ended up making a grave error, one that anyone serious about becoming a labor militant and transforming the trade union movement into an organizing center of the working class for its broad interest of complete emancipation must certainly learn to overcome. So, Albert Weisborg 
or Weisbord, I'm not sure if the dude's German on Albert Weisbord, um, at the time a member of the Communist Party and head of the textile committee, had been appealing to the AFL for help. So in response, the AFL rejected working with the openly communist-led tool and said they would only work with the UTW. The manufacturers then joined the chorus with the AFL. If Wiseboard would step out of the strike completely and the UTW were brought in to assume leadership over the strike, the AFL would support with relief funds the bosses would recognize the United Textile Workers Union. The Central Executive Committee of the Communist Party and Tool leadership thought that by agreeing to these demands, they, they would be prioritizing the worker strike over it being known that the strike was led by communists. Given that the rest of the communists remained amongst the workers in the strike, they thought that they could maintain influence over the leadership. But both of these assumptions were wrong. In effect, the communists surrendered their political independence to the opportunists, surrendered their leadership of the working class to the class collaborationists and representatives of the petty bourgeoisie. To jump in really quick, I, you, yeah. you can totally understand why what they were doing is kind of principled, right? Like agreeing to these demands, stepping aside in the idea that they would prioritize the workers' strike and their yeah. struggle. Uh-huh over themselves being known as the leaders or whatever. Exactly. But, but it results in this bigger error. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So with Wiseboard out, the UTW sought to immediately end the strike. The strikers refused to go back to work, but with a new leadership demoralizing and pulling back, as opposed to carrying forward the worker struggle, the strike ended in a slow and painful defeat. Worse yet, in spite of the manufacturers saying it would recognize the uh, United Textile Workers if the communists ceded leadership to the uh, UTW and the UTW receiving a freshly formed intestine Passaic local numbering in the thousands, that local was reduced to a few dozen in less than two years. So the defeat of the Passaic strike of 1926 would have a significant impact on the communists' 1929 transition from the trade union educational leagues emphasis on boring from within to the trade union unity leagues emphasis on organizing the unorganized by launching independent unions where the AFL and socialist unions were either extremely weak or non-existent. Finally, in April of 1928, five to 6,000 textile workers walked out in New Bedford. And uh, these were primarily skilled workers led by the New Bedford Textile Council. Tool members, through the Textile Mill Committee, organized throughout and around New Bedford thousands more of unskilled workers that the council refused to call out as well. So throughout this entire strike, the council led the skilled and the Tools Committee led the unskilled. Essentially, they had, they had separate strikes, separate demands, and separate relief measures you know, one of the notable developments, um, actually, from this fight was the committee's organization of the Unemployed Council of Textile Workers. But the longest strike in the history of New England's textile industry was brought to an end in October of 1928. Overall, it was a success due to the tool militants and communist leadership expanding the strike amongst the less skilled, unorganized workers. 
Um, but following the strike, the committee would soon reorganize to form the Trade Union and Unity League's National Textile Workers Union. Um, but, you know, as we mentioned, perhaps I can return some other time to talk about the Unity League, which is a whole other realm, you know, in another episode. Um, before wrapping up our look at the, the, the Educational League, I, I do want to make clear something that you had brought up earlier, what might be confusing for some folks. I'm often asked how dual unionism differs from what the Trade Union Unity League's turn was toward organizing independent unions, such as the National Miners Union, the Needle Trades Workers Industrial Union, and the National Textile Workers Union. You know, doesn't the end of the Educational League prove the practice of dual unionism correct? The answer is, in my opinion, not at all. And this is really actually important for us to grasp. Bourgeois historians, revisionists, and left opportunists all point to the Trade Union Unity League's independent unions and say, ha, you know, an independent union is a dual union. Foster's boring from within was wrong all along. But the difference between the old syndicalists and the communists were that the syndicalists started their one big union, right, the IWW, with the intent to pull the workers out of the mainstream unions and into their shiny, pure, revolutionary syndicalist union. Early American revolutionary syndicalism was, as I mentioned earlier, a genuine step forward from the backwardness of the reformist socialists, but it was a step backward for the proletariat in relation to communism. The communists in the initial tens of thousands of militant workers who followed their leadership didn't choose to start new unions because like the left sectarians of today, they thought starting separate organizations was how they could overcome bourgeois trade unionism. No, instead, they were expelled in mass, you know, barred from the AFL and socialist-led unions because of their work through the Educational League. You know, even with the establishment of the Independent Unity League unions, which again, were forced upon them by mass explosions and blatant sabotage of efforts to organize the unorganized, they still sought to work within the reactionary unions as much as they could. And there is criticism to be made of the Unity League between the years 1929 and 1935, but that's for another time. My point here is that there is a clear difference between dual unionism, which is sectarian and unwarranted by conditions, and the Unity League's tactic of organizing the unorganized through independent unions, a tactic forced upon them and correct in light of the development of conditions. All right. So, yeah. So we're getting at the very end here. We're going to wrap this up here in a second. But what we've done so far and what you've done, my friend, Chase, is to walk us through the relevant revolutionary theory that's going to guide and help us make sense of this uh, historical specific example and then walked us through the history of the tool and showed us how at different parts and different stages of their development they made certain mistakes they made certain successes they made certain advancements over what came previous the way in which there's reactionary elements of course without but also within union struggles um, and and laid out for us this broad history in hopes that People listening now will get involved in labor unionizing struggles, learn from the mistakes of the past of really well-intentioned comrades who are doing their absolute best and from their successes, 
and try to implement, guided, of course, by revolutionary theory, um, some of these lessons into the modern-day labor struggle because this labor struggle is not a flash in the pan. The stuff we're seeing right now, whether it's Starbucks and Amazon or UPS, the railroads and the UAW and whatever the hell comes next, is a real working class response to the depravity of 40 years of applied libertarianism that we call neoliberalism acutely and then more broadly is a response to the conditions of late stage capitalism and what it does to the working class. And so learning these lessons, understanding them in their, their deep minutia and trying to apply them in our present time is what this episode was about. And I'm so grateful, um, Chase, that you came on and educated me and my audience about this fascinating, though little known, episode of American labor history and what we can learn from it uh, today. So um, as a way to wrap this conversation up, though, I want you to sort of synthesize everything we've learned um, and and respond to this question. Uh, Where do we go from here? Yeah, so first and foremost, I would say, you know, we need a proletarian vanguard party with a firm grasp of Marxism-Leninism that over time becomes capable of leading the working class of this country through every stage of the revolutionary struggle. And you, I would say this task, you know, should be on the forefront of our minds and everything we do. But, you know, regardless of whether a listener agrees with me on that or not, we can, this is what I really want to emphasize, we can unite around the necessity of transforming the unions into organs to which the working class fights, not just for reforms or the amelioration of conditions, but its emancipation. This cannot be achieved without the uniting of today's labor militants into a tool-like organization, a united front militant minority organization that begins its work within the existing labor movement. But we have to begin to combat the conservative and reactionary leadership whose labor programs and policies betray our working class by capitulating to the capitalists and pulling back the consciousness and the struggle of the workers. You know, there can be no transformation of the labor movement as long as we allow the enemies of the workers to maintain control over the unions. In addition to ousting the opportunists and chauvinists, we have to build up the organizational strength of the proletariat by organizing the unorganized. And this task cannot be separated from the fight within the mainstream movement. So if we're going to see not just a small uptick, as we've seen recently, in unionization, but significant waves of the unorganized battling their way into new and old unions like 1933 through 35, then there must first be a serious fight within the old unions from a tested and steeled military rank and file. At every step of the way, the members of this militant minority organization would need to be aware of the right danger, you know, the error of falling into bourgeois trade unionism and economism. We are not fighting to modify the situation of the workers in this country. At minimum, genuine labor militants will grasp the need to abolish capitalism. You know, we certainly won't all be Maoists in this fighting trade union organization, but we would all know that any hopes for reforming capitalism must be overcome. Genuine class consciousness, which is to say revolutionary class consciousness, 
must be brought to the workers. And the workers will embrace revolutionary ideas in what we know to be their ultimate objectives as their own if we do not link up with them and lead them in their day-to-day struggles for immediate demands as well. There are many more questions that need to be asked and answered that I am presently unsure about, but this foundation is clear to me. With that said, some comrades of mine uh, and I are working to pull together some educations on this particular period of the labor movement and on the application of Marxism to the trade union movement. And we are looking to connect with anyone who wants to devote themselves to becoming a labor militant or is genuinely committed to the emancipation of the masses from capitalism. Two of them being um, Audrey and Lenny, who I interviewed for the Vote No episode you let us publish last month that I hope listeners will go check out if they haven't already. And to be clear, you know, you do not have to be a Maoist to link up with us, okay? Like the Russian syndicalists and communists who work together to transform their trade unions for the ultimate purpose of overthrowing the czar, the transformation of our trade unions will require communists and adherence to various anti-capitalist ideologies to unite with the aim of complete emancipation of capitalism. So please, don't hesitate to reach out, even if just for a conversation. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I really want to encourage whoever is listening to throw off any desires of having a career. Throw off any concern you may have with retiring. Give your life to a struggle that aims to end capitalism, right? That aims to abolish all forms of exploitation and oppression. Why not build up the movement that could bring an end to cops killing us in the streets? That could bring the oppression of semi-colonies and the wars between imperialists to a halt? Throw off the desires of private comfort and private leisure and consider giving your whole self to making war to end war. But I think, you know, it is not a life worth living. A life that sacrificed it all out of love for the people. Amen. So um, if you want to connect with us, three emails you can do so. Uh, and we can put these in the show notes. Our mass struggle pod that's pod at protonmail.com and then my comrades emails are aj5284 at proton.me and lenny m17 at proton.me we'll put those in the show notes um real quick a couple recommended readings for people who are really interested again please uh if you're going to read some of this stuff uh, definitely connect and reach out to us but start with fosters from brian to stalin it's on bandthought.net um, that's a really great place to, uh, to to get an introduction to the tools. Um, also, has yeah, he has a, uh, a lot of other great ones. I'd also recommend Lazovsky's Marx in the Trade Unions you can find online PDF. Uh, but most of the information that I talked about here today was pulled from both Foster and uh, Fawner's series on the history of the labor movement, volumes nine and ten. So, uh, and then, I mean, of course, you know, Brad Lenin's What is to be Done and Left-Wing Communism, I would say, are fundamental texts for really getting at the political and theoretical questions that we discussed at the beginning. 
definitely. And for those who are, are interested in those two last texts, uh, Lenin's What is to be Done and Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder, over on Red Menace, we've done full-on episodes analyzing, teaching, and applying the lessons from those texts. So anybody's interested in, in deepening their knowledge of that, definitely check it out. And for all the other things that you mentioned, including the emails, I will link to that in the show notes. I really want to reiterate um, Chase's example or his call to like give up on having this career, this individualistic pursuit of private comfort and this idea that you can retire, right? Like this system is in a crisis. This system is not going to reward you for being a good little, you know, worker bee for following their rules and staying in line. Even if you get a nice job and you think you're going to be able to retire, the crisis that is endemic to this late capitalist system is going to throw all of that into question. There's no guarantee, even if you're currently paying into something like a 401k, that you're going to ever have the chance to retire. And, you know, would you want to keep your head down, make profit for a company, waste the best years of your life toiling away at some computer desk for some guy who doesn't give a fuck about you and doesn't even know your name? Or would you rather risk this one life we have in the cosmos to fight for something bigger than yourself? I think the yes. question, I think the, the answer is, is very obvious. It's certainly obvious to Chase and myself. Um, thank you again, Chase, for coming on, man. I really love you. I love your work. I love everything you do. I think you're a real gem of the American communist left and that, you know, more people should um, be exposed to you and your work and should learn from you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on Rev Left and you have a home here anytime for any reason, my friend. Super appreciate you, Brad. Thank you so much, my friend. 